0: Tune into the Neil Prendiville show weekdays from 9am on Corks Red FM.
1: And as Neil Prendeville takes uh, well-deserved two weeks' holidays, it's Mick Mulcahy here for uh, the next ten days of Neil Prendiville show broadcasting. And what a week Neil had last week! A very heavy, a uh, very poignant, a very uh, very direct week, uh, which made comment in Doyle Aaron. Some fantastic investigative journalism done by the Neil Prendiville show team. And Neil and the team, uh, congrats on all of that. But we move on, and uh, we'll start start with the morning papers crisis meeting on the future of Cork Airport uh, Dara Birmingham uh, reporting in this evening's evening echo that current travel restrictions as a result of COVID-19 are stifling Cork Airport according to a Fall TD in Cork and Cork politicians have called for the government to intervene to ensure jobs are not lost as a result of the impact the pandemic and travel restrictions have had on the airport. We'll be dealing with some issues with Aer Lingus today. We'll obviously be talking as well uh, about the impending uh, departure of Ryanair from the airport, uh, unless restrictions are, I suppose realigned to suit their business model. Uh, The gun is to the government's head in that direction uh, and in that aspect but the Task Force for Aviation Recovery published their final report in July. It's written to the Transport Minister Eamon Ryan seeking an update and timeline as to the implementation of recommendations that threat of a major airline pulling out of Cork over the winter would have serious consequences for the area and everyone's hopeful for a resolution of this issue of course Uh, but if one or other ...of the airline's pulls. And don't forget that uh, Aer Lingus need, as a duty of care to their own shareholders... ...to ultimately protect the slots they own in, or they lease, or they have entitlement to in Heathrow. But that can be serviced from Dublin. They can fly extra flights from Dublin. uh, And that might be to the detriment of Cork. But we'll uh, come back to Cork Airport later on in the programme. People must reduce contact, says Martin. Michael McHugh reporting in the Echo that people will have to reduce social contacts at all levels during the government's medium-term plan for living with COVID-19. And that's according to the T shirt. Micheál Martin again said his main aim was to keep schools and colleges open and this would take precedence over reopening of pubs or staging sporting events. He confirmed that Ireland should not attempt to bring about hard immunity or herd immunity to coronavirus and expressed concern about Saturday's Dublin demonstration against the restrictions. Uh, uh, all this against the backdrop of more and more cases being reported From schools and schools closing and advising parents and classes and pods closing, etc. Ireland's COVID-19 blueprint for the longer term response to the infection will be launched tomorrow and the cabinet will meet to sign off the measures. Mr. Martin said the government would act decisively and it had learned from localised restrictions in the Midlands. I can't help but think, though, that uh, if any other county, and I know it's uh, per head of capita, Dublin is a very, very densely populated area, but if any other Uh, County was showing the uh, level of uh, increase in incidence in COVID-19 by now. They would have had restrictions and lockdown imposed on them already. But public health body NEFET, which advises the government, has called for the continued closure of non-food pubs in Dublin amid increased infection levels in the capital. And it's our understanding that uh, in the new uh, regulations and the new guideline roadmap to be released tomorrow that uh, pubs serving food and pubs who don't serve food won't be uh, distinguished against... Uh, you know, in the future, if one closes, they all close. I think that's something that's gonna, we believe is going to be, uh, contained in the regulations that will be released tomorrow. Cheetah cubs are born in Photo Wildlife Park. They've been named by the public. Rangers at Photo Wildlife Park have chosen names for the three northern cheetah cubs born in the park during the summer. Based on suggestions from the public. One male and two females born to mother Nimpy and father Sam on June 10th. Robin is the name that's been selected for the male cub. That could be a female name as well, I suppose. A suggestion submitted by Victor Levingston from Dublin. The female cubs have been named Olivia and Florence. Names suggested by Neve and Eva Butler from Formoy and Dylan Paul from Ballycotton, respectively. Please tell us why Mr. Blue Sky is such a big lockdown hit. Now, if anyone is interested in music, you'll be interested in this. It's not clear which piece of music people will associate with coronavirus lockdown for the years to come, but Mr. Blue Sky stands a fighting chance. The 1977 hit by ELO, Jeff Lynne and the band, has become a favourite according to uh, an analysis of Spotify, and academics think they know why. A report from the University of Leuven in Belgium has found the lockdown has, quote, significantly changed music consumption unquote. With more uh, listeners reaching for tracks that evoke nostalgia, sunshine, and tracks uh, as songs uh, older than three years. So people are looking older in their music enjoyment right now. What about Don't Stand So Close To Me by the Police? That would be a good one as well for the old lockdown. Over half of new COVID cases are now in Dublin. The Examiner uh, reports with uh, Marisa Fagan saying that more than half of 414 new cases of COVID-19 confirmed over the weekend were in Dublin, where Guardi are stepping up patrols to ensure compliance with public health guidelines. The health service confirmed one further debt from COVID-19 yesterday, as well as 255 new cases, and the latest figures saw three deaths and 414 new cases confirmed at the weekend, bringing the total number of cases closer to 31,000 and deaths to 1784. These new cases are positive swabs, by the way. They're not full-blown covid Uh, And some of these people may not even, uh, they may be asymptomatic and it may pass uh, like a a mild or a bad flu, but there you go. Tough new COVID-19 rules here until next April. Now, this is the uh, Daily Mail. Gatherings in our own homes are expected to be sharply curtailed under strict new COVID rules as the government prepares to reveal its tough five-level plan tomorrow. However, sports as well as indoor and outdoor events will also be targeted in measures that will last at least until April. The Independent says one million people face COVID curbs from tomorrow. Household visitor numbers to be cut and wet pubs face longer delay for reopening. More than a million people will face the prospect of new COVID-19 restrictions on visits to their homes due to concern over the rate of infections in the capital. New limits on visitors to a person's home are expected to be introduced as early as tomorrow in a bid to slow the spread of the virus. Meanwhile, the reopening of wet pubs in Dublin from September. Well, that's a misleading headline because it's just in Dublin. Uh, wet pubs in Dublin from September 21st is also at risk, with ministers set to deliberate on the issue amid the surge in COVID-19 cases. Gardaí have stepped up visible patrols in the capital, I suppose to pubs uh, acting as restaurants and restaurants themselves, in a bid to ensure compliance with COVID-19 regulations, such as wearing face coverings. Uh, The Vintners are saying let all of the pubs open. Any move preventing all pubs in Dublin reopening next week would completely destroy publicans' trust in the government, the Vintners have warned. And the Licensed Vintners Association has blasted an for singling out pubs, not selling food, and urged the coalition to stick to its decision. And there's lots more in the papers. Uh, Last hurrah, the UK revellers are going wild on a final night out, and lots of pictures Uh, in the mail of uh, people out partying the government in the UK have edged towards imposing new restrictions uh, including visitors uh, numbers to uh, pubs visitors numbers to houses and UK partygoers indulged in one last weekend blowout before their own controversial rule of six people kicks in New Dublin restrictions in the balance says the Irish Times and there are many more uh, acres of coverage actually in the uh, morning papers living with a COVID strategy. Uh, This strategy will outline a five stage framework Depending on the risk. And I imagine any county can be declared stage one, two, three, four or five. Five would be a draconian and very, very restrictive measure where pretty much everything would shut down. And I think it's going to make the government's response a little more nimble uh, than it's been and maybe a little more cohesive in its communication. Uh, so hopefully uh, we will have clarity. We will have good communication when that uh, comes out tomorrow. But we will, of course, cover it here on the Neil Prendival show. Just turning a quarter past nine now.
0: The Neil Prenderville Show.
2: With Tesco, save time and shop online. Simply log on to
3: tesco.ie.
1: And to our phone lines we go, and our first call of the morning goes to uh, Fanula, and good morning to you, Fanula. Hello. uh, Nick,
2: how are you?
1: I'm good. Now, you are angry, and to say you're angry is a bit of an understatement. The Department of Education, you contend, have robbed your son of his future. So, can you take us through it? Right,
2: yeah. Um, do you want me to go into detail?
1: Please, if you would.
2: Okay, so <clears throat> my son uh, was interested in doing a course up in Queen's University, Belfast.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, he started the whole process back in July 2019. Uh, it's quite a detailed process, you know, personal statement, school references, application form, uh, UCAT exam, which is equivalent to the HCAT. Uh, they looked at junior cert results. He went up to open days. He did everything he needed to do. He um, got he did so well in all that that he got got called up to interview stage. That was back in January 2020, and he did remarkably well at the interviews. In in so much as they offered him a place two weeks after the interviews, so on condition that he got 601 points in his Leaving Uh Cert. So since February, I suppose we've had that hope and. You know, it was all down to the last hurdle. So um, it came down to Monday then the 7th of September. He opened his results and he... oh, Part of the whole 601 was that you had to get H1s in specific exa- um, subjects, which includes chemistry and biology.
1: Understandable, so, yeah. Okay.
2: He got the H1 in the biology, but then the disappointment hit when he saw the H2 grade in chemistry and a H2 in physics. Now, uh, they would be probably two of his strong subjects. He was expecting a H1, but I suppose at the time we just went, OK, that's fine, let's move on, Queen's is over, that's fine. And I suppose we were quite positive about it and said, look, we'll just have to wait and see what happens on Friday. He's You know, he got the courses on the CAO option, and that was never going to be a problem. So then what happened on Tuesday, We we heard that his grades had been downgraded from what the teachers had given. So this is where the disappointment turned into anger and total dismay. We were so disappointed because I suppose on Monday we had got over the fact that Queen's wasn't an option and then to hear on Tuesday that Queen's was an option, but unfortunately it had been taken from him. So it, it we were just... It was just confusion. It was just a mixture. We were kind of heartbroken after everything that had... Like, there was a lot of energy, time, travelling, expense. You know, everything was put into this whole application. And I suppose he was smitten by the whole college. He could really see himself living there. He loved the people, the college, the whole idea of, you know, the new start. And I suppose it was just disappointing to hear that it, he had been one of the 17% that had been downgraded, just randomly downgraded.
1: Okay, 24 points were taken, you contend, by the Department of Education from his efforts, and yes. that downgrading is also, of course, uh, it goes against what his teachers knew of him, what he was capable of, and what they said he should be getting. Exactly.
2: And I, I really feel like it didn't just a disappointment for my son, his parents, but also very much so for his teachers and his school. And, you know, this this is, this is with every student in the country that this has happened to, not just my son. I mean, there's thousands affected. And I suppose it's just to get, get our voice heard that this this is unfortunate. It does affect individual children in every way. And it's not only just the high-achieving point courses. If he were going for something that was 400 points and he only got 380 he wouldn't have got his place. You know, it, it's down to every CAO application in the country that it's down to one, two, five, twenty points. It doesn't matter. With the downgrading, every, a lot of children in the country have been affected by this.
1: Okay, now, so, of I, course, I, I, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, as they say in physics. And the stolen 22 points, you contend they were stolen anyway, can't be returned because they form the part of somebody else's upgrade, really, don't they?
2: have any other word for it, I I don't know you know.
1: somebody else has gotten those 24 points in an upgrade Pardon? Somebody else has those 24 points in an upgrade
2: Exactly, exactly, that's absolutely that's exactly it. Um, it, it it's a standardised I Standardisation process. I know it happens every year. However, every year the child who thinks they might have got what they expected a B and they got graded a C, they can go in and get their teacher's advice, look at the paper, and if they think they deserve the higher grade, they can send it off. They can get it checked, and they and a lot of the time they do get upgraded. You know, so you know, Oshin definitely thought he was good in obviously very good at chemistry and physics. He was disappointed when he saw the grade, but then he said, Look, it's the teacher's opinion, it's the teacher's hard work. They have analyzed, they have, you know, thought about the detail of what where to grade somebody and we we accepted that. The teachers why well, would never, ever, ever have, you know, went against a teacher's grade. Like if he had been assigned a grade, we would have accepted it and moved on. But it's just the fact that um, as you say, they took the grade off of one child and handed it to somebody else, and we can't get it retested now. Apparently, well, we've no paper to get retest, so it's, it's not a, an option.
1: Yeah, well, you, you would have signed the opt-in, so that legally covers the government from that from that sense. You can sit one or all of the exams again in November, but that takes a year from O'Sheen's oh, life. Let's let's give our conversation a little context because what really caught me in the email you sent. Uh, was your description of your son. Now, everybody's son is great, of course, okay? But what you said is, my son O'Sheen is a great lad. He's always been an excellent, diligent, and a conscientious student who gave everything he ever did to 100%. From scouts to St. John's Ambulance, he has succeeded and went up through the ranks casually and modestly. In school, he always volunteered and put himself out there to help his fellow students uh, and teachers. He was loved by all the teachers, and he was perfect as a prefect In many ways. Uh, But you also said you want to uh, give your own context to it. Uh, He wanted to pursue a career in medicine, but he's suffering from scoliosis. And despite pain and discomfort, he remained stoic and never let it interfere with his school life, even after an eight-hour surgery to insert two rods and 22 screws in his spine. His positive and upbeat outlook on life got him through many and any hurdles that came his way. So that makes it kind of especially... More poignant, really, and uh, more upsetting that he's not getting to do what he wants to do, having worked so hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where do you go from uh, here?
2: Yeah. Where do I go from here?
1: Mhm. You and Ocean?
2: Well, like everybody else, we just have to move on, Nick. Um, he's Like, if, if he never had got the 601 in the first place, we would have been delighted with the optometry course that he's been given in the cao it's a fantastic course he'll be going off to dublin he he's he's going to get the opportunity to live away from home um you know it it, it, it's fantastic he's achieved amazing results we are extremely happy with how he has done but it's just niggling it's just a little bit of a niggle that it was in his grasp you know grasp 99% ninety nine percent in the pan at hand and it was just taken from him So, you know, that's the words you've just read out there explain ocean to a teeth. But I mean every parent in the world thinks thinks that of their their child, Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and and it's really hard to move on when you feel you've been robbed of a future.
2: Yeah. Because you yeah. feel
1: you're kind of going on the wrong road now. As you know, as rewarding as it probably will be for him.
2: Yeah. Oh completely. And and I mean he will go on and excel at what he whatever he does. But it's just, and the option of medicine and pursuing that is always, always going to be there. You know, you you can go graduate medicine, you could go in as a mature student. I mean, you hear that all the time, that people, you know, change careers in in their 30s and they move on and become doctors. I mean, it's, 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 there's there's no, it's it's not, it could happen in the future. You know, never say never. But I suppose with everything that Oisin has been through, and the effort and the work he has put into it, the support from the college and the school has been just amazing. I cannot praise them enough. they have just been they've been devastated through this whole thing I mean the emails he has been receiving have just been phenomenal you know and that that has helped. he He will grow as a person knowing just knowing that and he, you know we've moved on we're already packing for Dublin. it is what it is but. Unfortunately, I cannot see that this, the Department of Education will revert to the teacher's grades. I, I can't see it happening like a miracle overnight. You know, at, at this stage, I think Queen's has probably given his point, his place his system.
1: position away, yeah.
2: Yeah, who is unfortunately lower in the interview panel than he was. And perhaps they got the six. Like, the, Queen's won't let in anybody under the 601. I, I, there won't be a plan, uh, you know, a second round offer there's no there's no second chance that is their grade
1: but somebody in Ireland who essentially could be lesser qualified than your son who was upgraded could be getting that place
2: yes, yes,
1: exactly exactly
2: mm. yeah, and not so much lesser qualified but did did less better in the interviews or maybe had a lower junior cert or maybe just didn't get as, as well in the H-pass equivalent the UCAT it's called You know, maybe somebody down at the panel, let's say there's 250 places, possibly somebody on
1: 251 has has got his place. Sure. Uh, One of the strongest lines in your email, I'm going to read out here, you said, you know, the leaving cert is a very, very important document. The one my son has, has been falsified. It's a fake. It's been forged by the Department of Education. It's not what his teachers of six years analysed and discussed and thought long and hard about. This downgrading is an insult to my son, his parents and his teachers at school. Uh, I'm devastated for my son. I haven't felt heartbreak like this in many, many years. Every child deserves a fair chance, respect and a future. My son got none of these the minute someone slashed those H1s to H2s. Mm-hmm. Now, this was written, um, Nick, at half two in the
2: morning on Tuesday night. So you could imagine, I, you know, do I still feel like that almost a week later? Yes. But life has to go on we you know it it's it's a learning curve life is full of disappointment my son is so remains so upbeat and optimistic and stoic is the word i would use that he has turned this this whole farce into a positive he is ready to move on he's getting excited despite the heartbreak that happened last Tuesday. Well,
1: it's indicative of the character you portrayed him to be when you, when you wrote the yeah. email. Yeah, a stoic yeah, guy yeah. who gets on with the job, never a backward glance, yeah. and on we go. I, I want to yeah. bring some expertise to bear from a principal level, uh, and I'm going to do that in a few moments, so stay tuned uh, and um, we'll uh, bring some more expertise on this to the, uh, to the argument and, and to the whole deliberation. Because it, it is affecting many people. I believe in fee paying schools, about 50% of, the, of those in fee paying schools didn't get their first choice either. Uh, you know, so let's look at that in more detail as the program goes on. Right now,
0: 28 and a half minutes past nine. Thank you, Fanula. Good morning.
1: Okay, thanks very much, Nick. Cheers.
0: Bye-bye. bye-bye. Talk to Neil Printerville now. 1851
1: 106 Red FM. 9.30. Good morning. This is Mick Mulcahy. And no better man to give us more light on this subject than the principal of Bruce College on Patrick's Hill, which is Mehal Landers. Good morning, Mehal. Good morning, Mick. Okay. For the uninitiated, Mehal, t- take us through the whole process here. We had, you could almost call it an act of God or whatever, but we had a pandemic. Difficult mm-hmm. decisions had to be made by the Department of Education. Uh, it, it boggles my mind as to why the Leaving Cert wasn't run in some limited format with all of the Junior Cert teachers available who could have come in and did socially distanced stuff in GA halls or whatever, but it didn't run. And calculated yeah. grades had to happen. Can you give me the story from the start?
4: Yeah, I suppose it it really springs from March 12th when uh, schools uh, were, were shut down, uh, understandably so, um, because of the pandemic, which we, which we are still... Um, dealing with um i mean to to, to cut a long story short is uh it it, you know in my view it was totally understandable why they had to consider calculated grades um but the process changed and and it affected a lot of students as as you've heard uh uh, today And, and you know i can give stories of students that have went through personal tragedy during the year um and, and kept at it, and, and, you know, in certain cases were downgraded by, by, by three subjects uh, where grades were pulled down. But essentially what the department had to do was come up with a calculated grade system that was like taking a sedge hammer to a thumbtack, and and it changed. And for the department to say school profiling was not used is wrong. All schools were informed quite clearly to uh, put their grades together in line with the profile of the the results over the past three years. That's what we were all told to do. All schools, everywhere across the country. And as a result of what happened in the UK and the media backlash uh, against what happened in the UK, uh, the department changed the rules. And as a result of that, many students were put in a disadvantaged position and many students grades were pulled down an algorithm was used that has not been published I'm not aware of it I've I've read some things about it and we certainly will be looking at it closely and we'll be hiring people to look at how that algorithm uh, was developed what kind of inbuilt bias that it had because I don't know whether the department were looking to achieve a result and built that into the algorithm before they did it or just by accident um high achieving uh, students in schools like ours were, 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 were knocked back for nine. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I suppose w- when you look at it from just a layperson's perspective and very simplistic possibly, w- were the mm-hmm. department trying to stop fee-paying schools inflating their grades with which to sell their services next year?
4: Okay, so there's two different things here. Uh, schools across the country submitted calculated grades and and the nature of that process is teachers will naturally be uh, more favourable, and and will submit calculated grades. I, I would be very uh, interested in seeing um, the uh, proportion of calculated grades and the downgrades across all schools in the country. If the department wanted to share that, so so if somebody's disappointed with the calculated grade awarded and the and the department pulled it down, okay, that's that's one issue. In our school, you know, seventy percent of our students had at least one grade or more pulled down. I'm aware of other schools. Another fee-paying schools in Cork where that was over 90%. Uh, and I would love to know what was the average, uh, you know, in every individual school, because I would say there's massive variances. Uh, I know, for example, that the results submitted by our teachers, independent of me, uh, were very much in line with the profile of our results every year. In fact, from, from our initial analysis of the data, it's my estimation that we should have been upgraded Uh, not downgraded, to bring us more in line with the national average and the profile of the school over the last three years
1: Okay, I'm looking at correspondence you sent too Uh, on on Taoiseach, uh, local TGs, uh, Minister McGrath uh, Mm -hmm. Minister Coveney Uh, And and other TDs, including the Minister of Education, in your own particular situation, in accounting nationally, now we're comparing 2020 compared to 2019, nationally a a 47.6% increase, Bruce College 26% less, Uh, music nationally 30.2%, you got 13% less. Biology, 13.8% increase nationally, 22.2% subtracted from you. Yeah. In geography, 19 you got twen- minus 227 yeah And in home economics, 33% increase, and you're minused, yeah. minus 13.33. Certainly does seem uh, like algorithmic uh, discrimination.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a massive swing. It's not just the decrease for our students, but the increase nationally. So, you know, students in Bruce College were at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, and how the algorithm was composed and how that came about, uh, I, I'd be very interested in seeing. I mean, you know, I I think if if a fairer system, and I understand that, you know, this is not ideal and, and something, have, a fairer system would have been if students uh, in terms of the CAO and university places, because this is where the crunch happens. It's where there is inflation and and, and, and points not because of schools like Bruce College but because the Department of Education you know allowed hugely inflated grades go through this year Uh, but if there was a point system in place where instead of having the quota system that we have that there would have been a critical attainment for example you know let's take commerce in UCC anybody achieving 430 points or higher and having achieved their entry requirements should have been put into a random selection Uh, And and I don't think it would have made... Everybody would have been treated the same then. And the fine differences in the points then wouldn't have come in as as much. So, you know, there was a better way of doing this. And I don't think the CAO and the Department of Education were flexible enough or imaginative enough in dealing with this. So, you know, the calculated grades and the inflation of grades that, that ended up happening because of the whole process could have been diluted if the CAO... Was done differently this year. Mm-hmm.
1: Where, where do you go as as a collective of teachers, and, and a, you're the principal of the college? Where do you go from here? You've got a business to run. You also have, of course, you know those students who were disadvantaged. And I'm, I'm just, you know, using Bruce College as uh, yeah. as a, in, in general. Uh, wh- where do people go now? The school the school can't fight their corner. They must fight it individually, must they?
4: Yeah, yeah, they do. And I mean, we 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 are we are in touch with all of our parents and students. Uh, there is an appeals process, but It really, you know, the initial part of the appeal, students must appeal with the department to the individual student portals online. All our students are aware of that and how to log into it. Um, The initial part of the appeal will be the department just validating and checking the data submitted by uh, the school. uh, And a further appeal then goes to an independent appeal scrutineer. Now, I haven't details on how that is processed or how that will be done or what kind of timeline will be going on it Um, parents of children um, under the age of 18 uh, certainly can appeal to the ombudsman for children as well but you know this seems to be more a paper process Uh, and you know it's difficult to see uh, at this stage having first round offers made how the department could rectify it or change it but the, the whole process has put students who have worked extremely hard over a year or two, and there seems to be, uh, you know, a, a silence from a lot of schools. And I, I just want to make one thing very clear to, to your listeners, make because Bruce College is a private independent school. We receive no funding, not one penny from the Department of Education, uh, We got nothing from the Department of Education in regards to PPE uh, equipment or sanitation for school. Our students are being treated like second-class citizens. Parents of our students here are earning, you know, spending and investing in education. Uh, Where would this country be without parents like that? Where would this country have been in the 50s and 60s where we had no uh, free second-level education? And Donogham brought in a free second-level education in the late the late 60s. People invested in their children and only for a year or two. You know, people give up cars or holidays or kitchens or things like that. And, you know, most students that come to Bruce College, they come very happy from their other schools. They just want something different for a year or two. And from what I can see, our students and our business and our school is getting a slamming. Now, we're different to other private schools. So there are other Paying schools uh, where students uh, enter the schools, excellent schools, and parents pay fees to the school, um, and those schools are receiving capitation and the salaries of their teachers are paid, and that's fine, and I think that's 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 okay. But I just want to draw. There's a, quite a distinction between us and other schools, and I have to say, from reading the newspaper over the, the weekend, the the silence is deafening. From some of these schools. Uh, um, they've been there for years and I know anecdotally there are students from other fee-paying schools uh, in Cork and across Munster and Ireland where their students have received a slamming on the grades and I'm hearing nothing from their principals and I wonder why.
1: And what about those who had uh, you know, better grades given to them than they would have had right to expect?
4: I can't speak for them. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it in my own school. Uh, uh, you know, a fair and open system of examinations is the only way to determine, uh, you know, points. And that's the system not imposed by us. You know, the people think that grind schools, Bruce College is a school with 184 leaving certs this year. Out of 6,000 students that sat the leaving certificate in, in Cork or in or around that number. So schools like us don't influence the points. We have students that are certainly high achievers. Uh, But, you know, in terms of the actual uh, process and how it all worked up, it seems to have been very closed. Things seem to have changed very late. Um, And I cannot understand that. I do not believe that those in the Department of Education and the exams commission could not see what this algorithm and this process was doing to certain students. And they were happy to do that. They were happy to leave them swinging for all intents and purposes so that they could accommodate some, I don't know, popular misconception they had in their head in terms of what their uh, uh, system of justice and fairness is in terms of awarding grades. It's 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 crazy stuff. Michael, and, and, Michael without being yeah.
1: critical in any way of, of, of people, mm. you know, of children, young students who have got their, their offers yeah. now, um, is there a sense that some of them may not achieve as, as as good a result as as would be if everything had been normal. What I'm saying is, are are, are, are there? I won't say inferior; it's, it's the wrong word. Are, are there students of limited capacity now going to be really, really challenged by the courses they got?
4: I, you know, I, I I'm not qualified to say that, and I, I you know it would be unfair to say that. I, first of all, you know. It, Good luck to everybody that's got the offers that they wanted and and are happy with the results. And in first College, there are many students that are very happy. What, and it's not every student, but when you have 70% of your student population downgraded, there's this, there, there is an issue. And when the algorithm that was used and the process that was used was changed midstream, but at any consultation with the school, that's a problem. But in terms of the points, what I suggested earlier uh, in, in speaking to you was the fairest way of doing it would have been a critical attainment. If, for example, you achieve 450, you go into random selection and, and, and I think the, the unfairness of the system would have been evened out a little in that, in that, in that way. So I, I think one of the biggest issues here with all this, Mick, has been the, the um, lack of flexibility in our own system in being able to deal with this pandemic. And, you know, we had lots of time I mean, March twelfth. That was my next
1: question. Why why, you know, why wasn't all this done in June and, and and get everything sorted for the first round offers?
4: I I, I to be honest, I think a lot of people were, were away from their desks for a long time, uh, and and um, you know things shut down and and there was inertia. Uh, that's my sense of what was happening. Uh, there was inertia. There was a change in government. You know, we've had a lot happen in a short period of time, but I don't believe uh, that we really served all of our student population well by putting in this calculated grade system uh, where we changed it. So let's be very clear on this. School profiling was always part of this process. I, as a principal, and every other principal in the country were told, when your grades are submitted by your teachers... You must look at that and see how does that compare to your results over the last three years. And that is explicit instruction from the department and nobody can argue that. They decided to change it very quickly and there was no communication, no consultation, and they changed it. And as a result of this, there are so many students that have, not, uh, have been downgraded downgraded in schools like Bruce College and the Institute of, of, of Education and other schools as well and again I have to say you know we have to try and be fair everybody needs to be treated equally that means everybody that doesn't mean some people and just because some people decide to invest in the education of their children they're treated in a different way to other students now, that's, that's exactly what, what has happened here when in, in you know in, when has it become a crime, or when has it become why something it to be discriminated to invest, against? An yeah, an investment in education now is nearly disadvantageous. Michael, so, one,
1: one so, final question: yeah. I think they've been forgotten in the whole argument over yeah. the weekend and in newspaper discussions. But how do your teachers feel that there is almost an illicit inference that they've been, to, you know, about seventy percent dishonest in their
4: in their recommendations on grades? Uh, The teachers, the fortunate thing and unfortunate thing, I suppose, for our teachers is we have another cohort of leaving certs in uh, uh, this year. And that's what the teachers, that's what our teachers are completely focused on. And fortunately enough in Bruce College, we're dealing with our parents and our students and the department and the analysis of the data that we have compared to the National Lab. We're doing all of that and communicating that to our teachers. All I want my teachers to do now is to focus on teaching our own students all of the data um, and all of the class rankings and the grades submitted and all of this has been given to the Department of Education. And, And look, unfortunately... Uh, For anybody out there considering appealing, and this is the same for our own students and parents and for students and parents across the country in all of their schools, the appeal cannot be made to the school. The school cannot do anything in this process. The school can certainly look into it, and we will be in touch with the department further in regards to the data and how this worked relative to the algorithms that they they had used. But individual students and parents have to appeal this directly with the Department of Education. That is the only option open to them uh, at the moment.
1: Okay, Michal, I have to leave it there. 70% of your students were penalised on their grades compared to the calculated grade awarded by the school. That's coming out today in Bruce, is it? Those calculated grades?
4: The calculated grades have come out this morning. Yeah, so students will know what they've received um, relative to what the school awarded them.
1: All right, thank you for shedding so much light on this. You are, you are really professional in, in the area, uh, and that letter. Thank I you, mean, I, I'm and not make, sure. I
4: just want, yeah, I just wanted to say we, we, you know, to our own parents and students, we're not going to let this go. We will keep at this.
1: Okay, it does seem to be. Um, um, <sighs> I don't know what the, the correct word is. It, it does seem to be slightly underhand, that, that it was done in such a way that you didn't have a choice, that your teachers were cast aside, their opinions mattered little, uh, and now it's, it's almost as if the horse has bolted. It's too late now for anything but a reset in November uh, and to lose a year of your life if you want to do and pursue the the, the course that you wanted. It's a sad situation. But thank you, May Landers,
0: Principal of Bruce College. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now, 1850-104-106, Red FM.
1: 10 to 10, Eileen Keane, thank you for holding for so long, sorry for keeping you, uh, good morning. Hi Mick, how are you? I'm good, now you're from jumpstartyourconfidence.com and you have two main issues you see here.
3: Yeah, well do you know what, reading O'Sheen's email, to be honest, would bring tears to anyone's eyes, I think. hmm you know, you'd love to see someone in the power of be whoever made these decisions, come and answer that lad and you know, explain to him. I wonder whether there why be any decision. personal
1: representation, Eileen, that his mother could make directly to the school?
3: Well, I think as far as the appeal system, they're really making it very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's going to be, I suppose, if they start changing one or two, they know they're on for an onslaught. But I do think they need to be accountable and answerable. You know, this is just outrageous. That kid is one of many, 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 many students this year who you know, was treated so unfairly. I mean, I've spoken to so many teachers who are raging that their students' grades are dropped. I mean, who else has the right, really, to, let, to put marks on these kids except the teachers who've dealt with them for the last number of years? you yeah, like teachers t- know what their uh, kids are doing. Eileen, you,
1: I, I know many children who were celebrating last Monday um, yeah. because they got enough points. Uh, I know somebody who got enough points for medicine. I know somebody who got enough points for dentistry. They were celebrating on Monday and dashed on Friday.
3: Well, I know one or two of those as well, and I just was gutted for them. It's just so unfair. These kids have been through so much already. Like you look at mental health kids, this is just going to put an absolute rush on God. Love those kids' minds of where they feel they're going to be left. The unfairness of it, the unjustness of it, it's just wrong on every level. Like I think when they get the results from their teachers today, that's going to cause a huge amount of unrest. And understandably so. And somebody has to be accountable for this. Like this decision to change the way they were going to grade the kids was, was as um, that guy from Bruce said earlier, this was made very late in the game. I mean, they're sitting on these results to, since I think it was the end of May. The teachers had to have these results in, mm-hmm. and yet here we are in September, and a late decision made, and a lot of the, a lot of our students absolutely and utterly messed up. But well, it then, seems
1: to me, Aline, that the unilateral decision to change the, the way this was done, without consultation with the schools. Has has now created more of a furore than uh, you know than they were worried about because they introduced the algorithm to stop the the outcry that like happened in the UK. I, I think this is this is
3: worse. Well, I think it's worse because it's very unfair and unjust, and <clears throat> that's going to show up today, as you said. Now the kids are celebrated on Monday, and I know a few of those, and then on Friday they're absolutely smashed. You the likes of O'Sheen who his teachers know, and let's be fair about it especially the high achievers and the kids who are going to get high grades, the teachers know exactly what they're going to get. You know, the kids know. I've been blown away in the last number of years at how the kids are so accurate and what they're capable of. I mean, these kids are smart. They know how, to, you know how to play the game of these exams. They know how to get these results. And they know what they're going to achieve, 9, times out of 10. And yet, here they are having worked for so many years and somebody somewhere decides oh, we need to drop, we have too many H1s, we have too many H2s, who cares who these people are, let's just treat them as numbers. We can't do that. They're not numbers, they're people. And you know, all I'd say to the kids is, if this absolute mess-up isn't going to be rectified in time for you to get your places, do not let anything stop you going for your dreams, because you can achieve this yet. And if it means one year out of your life, which I know probably sounds like a huge amount now, but one year is nothing to achieve what you want to do in life and to get into that job that you are really passionate about. And the likes of O'Sheen, my God, what a wonderful doctor he'll make, what he's been through, what resilience he has. Do not let this rubbish stop you in your tracks because you can achieve this yet. And if that means it's 12 months down the road, then you go and you show them that this is what you're supposed to do because these kids are phenomenally clever and smart and empathetic. And, you know, they, they have so much to offer and we're smashing them absolutely smashing them.
1: It's a pity they can't travel for the year, isn't it?
3: Well, it's horrendous. I mean, I've had it home as well. (laughs) Like, it is horrendous, but we have to suck that one up. But, you know, I know now, hopefully, that there's one or two students who want to dentistry and those points rocketed, which was outrageous. But, you know, maybe get a job as a dental nurse. Maybe do some course online that's going to help. Maybe earn some money to help you for the next year. But do not give up. Because in my line of work, what I see is kids going into the wrong jobs for the wrong reasons. And this situation is opening that up massively. My my word just to all these kids is do not give up. If this is your passion, you can achieve it somehow. And in any way I can help anyone, I'm here and absolutely would be more than happy to help. I just feel so sorry for them. I think they've been through too much. They're treated now like numbers instead of people. And these kids, the hours, and you know what they've given up, Nick, as well through the years, the last two years, I guarantee you, a lot of these high achievers who are going for the dentistry and the medicine and the physio and whatever it may be, you know, they've given up an awful lot to achieve these grades and they deserve it. And when they put their head down and this is what they want to do, most of these kids do achieve it because this is what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Here, here's a here's
1: response, problems. Eileen, to, to Micheal Landers. Wow, a man representing kids and parents with massive privileges throughout their lives is on the radio complaining about being treated unequally. I suppose if the parents of normal kids only worked a bit harder they could also invest in their kids future. I don't think I that's think fair. I I've, been... I've I've used the services of Bruce College and I wouldn't say from a from a position of any privilege. Uh it was through a position of sacrifice that well, uh, you know yeah, it's, it's it isn't cheap and not everyone can afford it and just flippantly write the check. Uh when we used Bruce College we we paid for it by the month and uh, it wasn't easy. Uh so you like I don't think it's uh, all told.
3: I, I know, but I do suppose, uh, the way I look at it is all kids are, are equal. I don't care what school they're in. I don't care if they're private, if they're public. I don't care where they go. These kids are working hard regardless of their schools. There's teachers across the board where their grades have been dropped. Just because someone's in a private school does not mean that they're going to get the best of everything at all. You know, some of the teachers in a lot of the other schools are equal, are better than many. You can, I just don't think there's any judgment there that can be. And I do feel, there. you know, obviously there's going to be a feeling of, well, well, my kid is going to a certain school because that's all we can afford. But I think no matter what school your kid is going to, if they want to achieve something, there's very few schools can't actually attain that and make it happen. So regardless of their school, I think let's get rid of that one.
1: Yeah, because I know. And and I would, would also sport. contend that the, the teachers who feel disenfranchised here and, you know, who may be, may be really angry today are, are the ones who really know what the kids are capable of. Not, not an algorithm and not a bell curve.
3: Well, this is the point. I mean, these teachers and a lot of them, in fairness, and I know they get a slating, but to be fair, some of these teachers are phenomenal and they will have brought these kids the whole way through, shown them self-belief Given them that belief and helped them to achieve what they need to achieve. Those teachers know exactly what these kids are capable of doing, regardless of what school they attend. Uh, All right. Thanks, Eileen.
1: I've got to leave it there. You're you're at jumpstartyourconfidence.com if anybody wants to avail of your services. Thanks a million, Eileen. We have news at 10 on the way on The Neil Prendiville Show. The Neil Prendiville Show.
4: With Tesco,
2: save time and shop online. Simply log on to Tesco.ie.
1: Now, last Friday, we received the following email and uh, put it on our Facebook page from the mother of a high achiever who says the Department of Education has robbed her daughter of her future. Uh, It goes like this. Hi, Neil. The Department of Education has robbed my child of her future. All her life, she's been a H1 student. She studied hard for the past three years and picked her college courses based on the results of her pre-leaving cert and the historic rises in her courses of choice. We were confident she would get at least one of her top four but the day she was offered her 10th choice on the CAO application. We weren't best pleased with the calculated points she got on the Leaving Cert, but felt she could still get a nursing degree based on historic data. However, today's CAO just is rubbing salt in the wound. We're not sure what path we can take now as my 18-year-old heart is broken. I understand COVID-19 put this year's Leaving Cert into disarray, but I feel the Department of Education algorithm has denied my child her chosen career path. I don't believe her teachers would have awarded her anything less than what she received in the pre-leaving cert, which is uh, always marked hard anyway. I'm currently dealing with a young woman so deflated she doesn't know where to turn, and I don't know how to console her. We got a huge reaction in text form on that. And I am aware that people are, you know, saying that I'm talking to uh, the uh, teachers and the parents and reading out... uh, uh, comments from uh, privileged children uh, but there is a real issue here in that uh, a huge swathe of the Irish student population seem to be, have been discriminated against Catherine says she's 18 what's the rush she can sit her exams in November and get what she truly deserves Emer said I'm 37 I've been to college twice I worked in two various professional settings both outside my col- college education then I went traveling. I did the things I enjoyed. I came home and got a job for a U.S. company. Again, outside of what I studied for. And since then, I've trained to be a personal trainer. Uh, like, seriously, th- uh, things change. Granted, I'm not the best example... I would have, uh, should have had more parental guidance more than anything, but still we figure it out at the end of the day what's worth working for. And uh, Neve says sometimes things don't work out as planned. It's a bit over the top to say the student has been robbed of her future. Lucinda said she should reset the leaving cert next year. This year was lost for many, but she shouldn't give up hope. She's still young, so she can afford to better herself by doing so. It would be a year less wasted trying to make it up in credits in college where she to fork out the funds to go where she need to be. Sharon said, OMG, why do parents put so much pressure on their kids for college? She's only 18 and she still has her whole life ahead of her. My son was offered mechanical engineering and CIT. He decided to take a year out. No point pressuring your kids, especially everything going on in this world today. The mother should be hugging her daughter. And Eleanor says, My heart breaks for the young people today. So much pressure and disappointment on their shoulders. But here's the story of one of my children. When he filled out his CAO, he put accountancy first, which he got. He decided after he'd gotten his degree that he would train to be a primary teacher, which actually was his second choice on the CAO. He's been teaching for the last few years, but now at 29, he's returning to college to train as a journalist, which was his third choice on the CAO. So don't lose heart, people. You have a lifetime to figure out what you want to be, and there are so many ways to get there. There are many, many more uh, texts, which I'll get to hopefully before... The end of the programme. Now, the teacher's grades were released today and the Department of Education downgraded my daughter's results, As another texter. It's disgusting to think that our child knew she did better. These are live texts just going to the programme now. Her teachers knew she did better, but yet some a-hole in the Department of Education decides she doesn't deserve better. The story becomes more disgusting because if we appeal her marks, you'll be appealing the teacher's grade, which um, which was better, and not the Department of Education grade, who downgraded her. So she loses out in her course this year through no fault of her own. How is that fair? We can't appeal Department of Education grading, even though teachers and the students know they have done better. And so says Honor. Happy to read that one out. Now, to a change of subject, and we will come back, because we're getting lots of texts on the CAO and on the awarding of points in general, but on a different topic completely. Good morning, George. Hi, George. Hello. How are you doing, George?
5: I'm very well. Hello.
1: Mick? Yes, no, we're talking about Cork sorry, Airport.
5: i have just listened to you on the air then, and um, of course I've got, I'm listening to it, and it was about like three minutes ago, so it was quite sudden when you came on, sorry about that.
1: Oh, no problem. Okay, now you want to talk about uh, Cork Airport and uh, its position in general, uh, and the fact that uh, an airline cannot and should not be holding a county or a country to ransom during this time of pandemic. Tell me all about it
5: well it was just that really i heard it on your um i heard it on your news slot this morning at nine o'clock and i and i immediately got my heckles up because it did it did like stink of like um being held to ransom and you know at this time they can't be doing that there's a lot of planes in the air at the moment i know so there's a lot of traveling all over the world and um they're trying and and it all started when ryanair sort of basically got onto the government and said listen Lads, you've got to put us up in the air. It's ruining. It's ruining our business. You've got to do something for us. And of course, from the government's perspective, there's a lot of there's a lot of revenue lost because of it. And um, and they don't want things like what is currently uh, been mooted um, being put into place. But the, the the sensibility of it is that. We have to, it has to be a case of what's good for the people, not what's good for an airline. And if part of this economy breakdown is that Ryanair can't be um, operating from Cork over the winter months, which of course affects me dramatically because, um, you know, I have relatives that I'd like to go and see. Uh, uh, But I do also feel quite assured in my own head, although uh, I can be wrong, that there's going to be a case where another company will take over, and yeah. they'll say, "Okay, we'll start doing these runs."
1: But we we do need we do need airlines. We do we have two. Well, we have two main ones servicing with with assets on the ground, as it were, in Cork Airport. That's Ryanair and Aer Lingus. And we do need airlines for the connectivity. We do need it for essential shadow of business Without
5: travel. Without a doubt, it's just how that game is played. You know, um, I I would assume that in order for Um, Ryanair to run from Cork, they are going to need more destinations. And what that means is, they're going to need to have more places open. So therefore, Mr. Government, best mate of mine, uh, who needs my revenue, start letting us go to some other places. And that, of course, is bad for the country.
1: Well, the one thing I wouldn't say about Michael O'Leary and successive governments is calling them best mates.
5: Well, I know, but uh, they could do, in the case of where revenue's there,
1: you know, Look, we're, we're going to see the end of many airlines due to this worldwide problem, uh, this worldwide yeah. lack of demand. I mean, Cork Airport is down 95%, and a lot of that is down to the fear that people have in travelling, or to their reticence to to lock themselves up for two weeks when they come back.
5: Well, yes. Um, there's, there is a lot of that. We do see a lot of people around town who don't actually lock themselves up after two weeks, but... Um, the, uh, the, whole, the whole problem, yes, there is. It is going to shut a lot of places down. Uh, it's going to shut a lot of businesses down in general all over the world. This, uh, this pandemic, which we don't know if it's going to be the last pandemic. We don't know if it's just going to be the beginning of the pandemic. We don't know if, the, if this is going to mutate into something that is worse than what we've got. I mean, I know a lot of people think the amount of people that have died uh, in relation to the amount of people that have it is very negligible. Um, but we do live in a world now where the youth of today are saying, but those people who have died have families and we care about them. Uh, so uh, we've taken all that into consideration. You know, that's going on as well. The economy is going to be affected.
1: And we have a government who, who needs to legislate. To manage this pandemic, we're going to have the first steps of that tomorrow. Uh, But certainly, uh, I would imagine that relaxing rules on travel and leaving people flying in and out all over the uh, place—you know, without certain restrictions and and, and observing quarantine back home—is not going to help this bell curve, which is increasing dramatically now.
5: It is. It is increasing, and uh, I mean, I don't know. Do we do we go into one of these Orwellian states where everybody is? I mean we 're seeing videos already on the internet that show uh, um, like police in other countries who are who are pinning down young girls who haven 't got a mask on you know is it going to come to that stage because we i don 't know what the percentage of people in the world are who think that this is um, this is a government-led sort of control scheme uh, in relation to the amount of people that actually care for it and worry about it. And then, of course, you have the other component part who are actually terrified about it and, as you say, just put themselves into a closed room and that's where they live. And, of course, that's, you know, that's all part of what's affecting the economy. I, I don't think that there's any other way that it can go than the way it's going at the moment.
1: Yeah, Well, look, uh, an airline, and I take your point, an airline cannot and should not hold a county or a country or a government a ransom during the time of pandemic. But, having said that, I'm, su- I'm not sure of the number of assets. I, I think Lingus have, have two planes, um, Domicile and Cork, and I think Ryanair have three. Uh, that's essentially a $63 million asset sitting on the ground. Uh, and if it is flying, even to protect slots, it's flying half empty, or 95% empty, uh, if the figures are to be believed. the The basic business decision is we need to move the assets... Where the restrictions will allow us to make money.
5: So yeah, so so change to places where we can go. So that would be down to
1: Ryanair, wouldn't it? No, it's it's down to the government's green list that Ryanair will subscribe to, but it's not expansive enough for Ryanair to make a profit.
5: that's where that's where the issue comes in here for me, and I'm sure for for other people. I hope so. Anyway,
1: otherwise mm-hmm. I'm on my own. Okay, um, I, I, I want to move on and talk about Erlingus, George. Thanks very much for your contribution. Appreciate it. All right, then. Thank uh, you very much. Thanks please. very much. Bye bye. Now I want to go to Janika O'Leary Sinn Fein TD. Good morning, Janika. Good morning. Oh, uh, before we get on to Erlingus, you're also, of course, your party spokesperson on education. What do you make of this yeah. algorithm about the indiscriminate way it was applied uh, without communication, without consultation? Uh, the slap in the face that's been offered to many students across the board. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's too late. The horse has bolted. The CAOs are out. What's your general take on the situation?
6: Well, look, I mean, I do think the government has got it back to front. Um, We were always of the view that the algorithm should be published a long time ago so that we would have the opportunity to have a public debate around it to understand what it meant and the implications of it. It is that technical that we're only gradually beginning to understand the implication that it's having, but obviously it has real implications for individual families and individual students uh, and on their hopes and dreams. Um, it's also the case that they should have published the, the, the school grades that are coming out today should have been published at the same time. Uh, as the grades given up by the department in the interest of transparency because, you know, the full picture was not being offered. From my point of view, like, I mean, look, even back in May, we expressed serious reservations about, uh, calculated grades. It wasn't the model that we advocated for. Um, we, I, we were of the view that school profiling was the worst element to that, uh, but, We were under no illusions, but that calculated grades were still likely to lead to uh, unfair outcomes for individual students as well. (laughs) Personally, we would have been, we advocated and I spoke on the show about the need for the focus to be on expanding access to education rather than trying to close it down and that actually the focus should have been on trying to offer as many as possible students their first choice and then after that that for high competition courses that there would be an assessment organised at the university level uh, and to I suppose, to separate out the controversy uh, around university places entirely from the Leeds, uh, and that that would be the way in which third-level places would be allocated. Um, it would be difficult, but I think it would at least have had the merit of being an absolutely level-playing field for anyone that would have ended up in competition and would have maximised the places. I think they began to look far too late at adding additional numbers so that the amount of additional places, while welcome, was not anywhere near what was truly needed.
1: Okay, now we're looking at a government of course who hasn't covered itself in glory in the uh you know clear and coherent communication stakes is is this a bigger p r debacle than that which it was trying to prevent
6: in terms of the leaving search yes. Um, I think look I mean I think they certainly could have been an awful lot clearer I think they could have been more transparent like I mean I wrote to the department asking for the algorithm to be published in in June and they only published it last week Um, so like I mean as I say it's technical and it requires a lot of oversight um, and inspection of it so like I mean that should have been done a long time ago but yeah I don't think it was well communicated Uh, and I think there's lots of students out there who are very very frustrated now uh, and I think quite understandably uh, given I suppose the work that they would have put in over many many years um, like ultimately as I say I think the wrong approach is taken uh, and I'm sure many many students are are very upset at the minute I would say to them look make sure you lodge your appeal pursue every avenue that's available to you um, but I will be speaking with the minister today uh, or sorry over the coming week I should say I'm not sure I'll get to her today but that she be available to me but I'd be looking for further expansion of third-level places if at this late stage, particularly for students who would have got the place apart from the standardisation. I think we do need to look at that.
1: Mm, Okay. Now, that's uh, me speaking to you, of course, in your position for your party uh, as spokesperson on education. I want to do a a more in-depth interview with you, uh, if possible, on Aer Lingus, on Ryanair, and on uh, the situation in Cork Airport in general. So can I beg your forbearance for... For one minute, I just need to take a short break, and then we can have a proper run at it, Donegal, all right?
0: Okay. Text the Neil Prendiville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM.
1: 23 minutes past 10. We're back with uh, Sinn Féin TD for Cork, South Central, Donegal, Lira. Thanks for holding, Donegal. Now, on to the airport and lots of things that are happening there. Uh, just by way of an introduction here, I remember speaking to the... Uh, The chairman of the president of the Irish Travel Agents Association, Cork's own Pat Dawson, about a year ago. And I said, Pat, answer me an honest question. Are there more people leaving from what people now call Terminal 3, Patrick's Key, on the buses to go on their holidays and go on their business trips from Dublin and subventing the long haul routes in Dublin? Than are leaving from Dublin Airport, and he said, "I honestly can't answer that question." So that was me coming from the D uh, Dublin Airport Authority, maybe keeping Cork and Shannon in a controlled second place environment. Cork Airport is now fighting for its very existence.
6: There's no doubt about that. I'm attending amazing today at a level with um, Cork Airport Management, and uh, we'll be hearing about the various challenges that a- Cork Airport faces. Like I mean, there's no doubt, but that. Across the board, aviation and travel uh, is under serious pressure. The government, I think, have been very slow to address this. There is no coherent plan. They've basically abandoned the aviation task force report. Um, and, you know, they've said that parts of it have been implemented, but there was flaws. But if it was flawed, then why has this new government not brought forward its own plan? Uh, there seems to be no real strategy. But as within that, Cork faces a really particular challenge. So you have Dublin Airport, obviously a major international airport. It's the the capital and, uh, you know, any, the largest amount of international travel cultures. Shannon with its long history of transatlantic flights, albeit that faces challenges too. And then the regional airports, which are, obviously have much greater public service obligation routes, is much more heavily subsidized. So Cork kind of stands out on its own in that it's of the, of the large three it's traditionally the smallest, uh, but on the other hand, it isn't one of the ones that's getting subsidies or public service obligation uh, ah. expenditure. So it requires a very particular challenge. Like, look, we all accept that aviation is going to return to normal anytime soon. We all accept that perhaps it will never be, you know, the exact same as what it was before, but we will always need air travel from Cork. Uh, and the staff of Cork Airport need jobs. And what I believe we need to do is create a scaffolding, particularly for the employees of Aer Lingus, of Ryanair, of the airport itself, to construct a safety net and to ensure that the airport is in a position that when things change, as they will gradually over the course of time, then perhaps in the longer run or radically, that the airport will be in a position to compete. But at the minute, it's not getting the support there's very little clarity around how aviation is to be managed, and the staff have been left in a perilous position, and I think very badly treated by the airlines as well. As, as well, I will say that, like I mean, the behaviour of Aer Lingus has been appalling, absolutely appalling.
1: Let's look at that it's in awesome. singularity, and, and I know the Neil Prendiville show made you aware of emails that we've been, uh, you know, that we received. Uh, there is certain one here about um, the situation at Air Lingus. I'm working as a cabin crew at the airline when all this started, uh, and emailed the show. Uh, the response is that they're, they're doing their best. But Lingus staff are essentially working for 30% of their wages. Uh, I have an email here, which I know we've sent to you as well, uh, in which, which, which I have the guy's payslip for two weeks uh, of €181.72. And, uh, and His deductions are minimal, just 90 cents for the USC. But he's expected to feed a family on €90 Euros a week, and that's two weeks' work. Uh, I'll just synopsize the email if if, if I could. I have a permanent contract that supposedly ensures I receive a minimum of 26 to 32 hours a week. Aerolingists only pay 30% of the wage, and they rely on the government to top up the further 70%. So in order to get this allowance, you need to fill out the forms, the UP14 form and all of that. My last paycheck was roughly €180. This is fortnightly pay. I have to pay my rent, I have to keep my family fed, I have to keep my car on the road, and pay my direct debits. And I've, he's attached the screenshot of the pay slip which we had. Despite repeated attempts to reach out to management with the issues with HR and concerns about my livelihood, all emails have been ignored. So on one side we have Aer Lingus with, I think, two, two assets on the ground flying there. Ryanair have three, about $200 million worth of assets. You can't expect them to fly them forever if they're empty. You can't expect the government to legislate that people can fly anywhere willy-nilly. Is Cork Airport now between a rock and a hard place?
6: Well, it is, but like, I mean, I don't think it needs to stay like that. I don't think it can stay like that. Like, I mean, it is you know, the government is serious about ensuring balanced regional development, and so they talk about Ireland 2040, and you know, i have criticism but there's some good stuff in there too but if they're serious about it, then Cork needs an airport, Cork needs a viable airport but just going back to that particular instance that I read that, and it's just it's, it's incredibly striking, you know, trying to feed a family on 90 euros a week, it's just, in this day and age, it is not good enough it is unacceptable, and what's more and I can see it in the other emails like Aer Lingus were refusing to sign off so workers who would have been on the temporary wage subsidy scheme would have been entitled to access uh, the temporary wage uh, supports from the Department of Social Protection like what's commonly known as the X's knows but Aer Lingus was refusing to sign off on that so they were refusing to allow uh, as I understand that they were refusing to allow uh, some of their staff go in and access some of these uh, supports that would have at least helped make some of the difference of, of the poverty wages that they were being paid. But, uh, and now with the minute they're trying to, trying to conflate the, the two wage subsidy schemes as the new scheme has come in. Um, but like, I mean, whatever the case, they have been stonewalling their staff. Their staff are on appalling wages. Uh, and at the same time, you have Willie Walsh, the head of IAG. He's retired uh, now. Heading off yeah, who's heading off into the distance with the with the with the bonus on his retirement? Um, we we've also identified the fact that, and I think this is particularly important for Cork and for Shannon. Like, I mean, when the stake in Air was sold, um, which was twenty five percent, there was a large sum in excess of three hundred million, um, which accrued to the state. There's still two hundred forty five million of that left, which is supposed to be there to support connectivity. Now, like if ever there was a time to invest uh into ensuring sustainability and to ensuring that the workers are supported, then now is the time. So we would be of the view that, I mean, this is a quarter of a billion euro. The German state has done the same thing. They've taken a 20% stake in Lufthansa. Um, we believe that the government needs now to be going back to Aer Lingus looking for equity to ensure that jobs are protected and to ensure that the airline is uh, is sustainable.
1: Mm-hmm. Because my fear is that if the Heathrow slots were moved, for instance, to be serviced from Dublin, uh, that they may never come back to Cork at all.
6: And that has huge long-term implications for Cork as a whole. So like I was just saying, there's, there's two considerations in my head. There is the strategic element to this, like, I mean, how do we ensure what becomes the city we all want it to be? How does it grow? How is it connected to the world? We need slots to Heathrow, need an international airport. Again, we all accept uh, that aviation isn't going to return to normal any type soon, uh, but we will always need an airport and we will always need routes. But the second major consideration is the workers who I think are being treated as pawns by the two airlines. Uh, they're being stonewalled, they're being ignored, they're facing poverty wages. It is absolutely uh outrageous, to be honest with you. So, like, I mean, look, if the government says that the last aviation task force plan is no good, well, look, fair enough. It was the previous government. But bring forward your own plan, and that needs to contain specific measures for court, because as I've identified, it is in a very particular situation. Uh, you know, caught in the middle between the small ones and the biggest two. But, you know, there is no arguing with the numbers: 95% drop in passengers, 23 million loss in revenue. It is in a perilous, perilous situation. Uh, nobody is saying that the gates should be just thrown wide open, but it's clear that the current situation is not sustainable uh, in terms of the staff or in terms of the airport.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryanair, of course, blaming the government's mismanagement of the green travel list. Uh, to how much is this Bluff and bluster, or is Michael O'Leary serious? Do you think? Will he pull the assets?
6: Well, look, I mean, I do think there is an element of, you know, brinksmanship uh, on the part of the airlines, and that's what I talk about when I talk about uh, the staff being used as pawns. Um, and I regret that, to be honest. I, uh, look, I don't believe that these airlines are necessarily any friend of the workers, and, like, I mean,. Ryanair will, will go for the best price that it can get anywhere. I'm not sure it has any particular loyalty to Cork or anywhere else for that matter, to be entirely honest. Um, but, like, I mean, they will see the long term. In the long term, if Cork Airport can be sustainable, then Ryanair will want to be there. So, like, I mean, there is a balance to be struck, obviously, in how you deal with uh, with self-interested actors such as Ryanair. But it is true that there is a lack of coherency. You can't repudiate a a government, like, I mean, what was there, aviation dance floor was set up by the previous government. uh, There is a document there. It contains actions to be implemented to safeguard the industry, to safeguard aviation in Ireland. If you're going to repudiate that, you have to replace it. You have to substitute it, and the government hasn't done that. And I know that there has been talk, like, I mean, testing and tracing is such a key part of this. Um, Like, people need to have uh, confidence that anyone who does travel here has been rigorously tested and that if there is an issue that they will be followed up upon and traced. Uh, But that isn't happening and there isn't widespread uh, testing and tracing uh, pro-forma of people as they come in. Well, the The said
1: on on the Week in Politics yesterday, Danica, that uh, the HSE are reticent to deploy tested tracing uh, or, you know, certain specific tests at airport because of a perceived lack of resources. Is that credible?
6: Well, I appreciate that that is the case. I'm sure that the HSE are right in saying that. Uh, So, like I mean, look, I wouldn't second guess that. But the point I was going to come to, and I was going to identify those comments from the shirt yesterday is, like, I mean, that raises questions about capacity. Like, I mean, look, we've been living this for for months now. We've known that test, trace, isolate are the basic first principles of how we uh, manage and ultimately uh, eliminate outbreaks or cases. So, um, like, I mean, I do think questions need to be asked. Like, I mean, it is possible to scale up new staff in the testing uh, in the taking of the test and the swabbing. uh, Why has that not happened more rapidly? If it had, we would be in a much stronger position, for example, not only to deal with the issue of airports, we would be in a much better position to ensure that um, the... Schools, that any school staff or teachers would be in a position to get get results within 24 hours, Uh, that the meat factories would ensure that the constant testing continues there, direct provision, nursing homes, all these. Yes, there's huge demand, but we've known about this demand for some time, so why haven't we been upskilling people to take on this one?
1: Okay, now you mentioned the meat factories there and I didn't intend to get into this area of things but how farcical is it that there's now no testing going to be deployed in meat factories which are proven sources of, uh, you know, outbreak spreading in concentration. And and then next Monday, if you go to a pub you must turn down the telly in case you talk too loud. I mean, come on.
6: But some of the restrictions around the pubs are ludicrous. Obviously, I don't I even begin to understand where the noise stuff comes from, to be honest with you. Um, And some of the restrictions that have been laid down have been farcical. Um, And look, I think when you lay down restrictions, obviously, uh, as as time goes on, incoherencies will become apparent. And that is just, like, I mean, I do understand that we're dealing with a developing situation, uh, that that will happen, that that's understandable. We are all learning through this. But when incoherencies become very obvious, they need to be eliminated. And silly ideas such as uh, tackling the noise of the pub is just, it is just nonsense. And it's, uh, like, I mean, it's almost puritanical in a way, like, I mean, because, look, I mean, publicans, uh, there's a lot of staff involved and a lot of people whose incomes rely upon that as well. They are looking to get to a responsible Position to ensure they can uh, employ people, that they can offer the service that they do in a responsible way. This kind of stuff is a distraction. And I do think, you know, stuff around the meat factories, like, I mean, I do think it's shown a light on uh, an exploitative uh, industry that. um, I think, was relying on workers in low wages, in poor conditions, uh, and with very little transparency. And I think that the ongoing testing there was essential. Uh, And it's incredible that it was dropped, even if it was for a temporary period or not. That may have been because the issue was highlighted. And Um, most of those
1: low-paid workers, Donnick, are living 20 to a house? Yeah.
6: No, look, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's unacceptable in 21st century Ireland it is unacceptable and look I mean it may have hidden away from the public eye before now but like I mean it shouldn't have been uh, and it clearly isn't now but um, it is an industry that is obviously in dire need of reform Uh, I think there have been people highlighting that for some Mm -hmm. time but uh, low paid workers, migrant workers incredible exploitation and look I mean in the environment as you say dozens of people within the same house and working shoulder to Shoulder, like I mean, that is the nature of these uh, meat factories. Uh, there was always going to be the risk of infection, and you know it was clearly poorly managed. But the lack of testing and the fact that there was even considered that that would be paused is is hard to comprehend. But it all comes back to capacity, and you know whatever about at the start of the outbreak, um, we are now six months into this pandemic. We know that it's possible to upscale people to do the thing. There is no good reason the capacity shouldn't exist to tackle our airport
5: and no meat factory. Well, if
1: this programme has proven anything last week uh, with the fantastic journalism that they portrayed, which was mentioned in the Dole, is that there is a serious level of capacity at certain management levels in the HSE...
6: Th- there's no doubt about it yeah Look, like, i mean look i mean i do think that the government needs to needs urgently address this issue of testing uh, they tell us that the capacity exists but like i mean and on the other hand uh, and we have heard them say that but then on the other hand they're saying well look the capacity doesn't exist to do that at the airports yeah. Let, let's uh, get back and to
1: the... the airports i'm, I'm looking at uh, this evening's evening echo and an email to the eurodocs members which was seen by the echo uh, this is this is some of the text aviation in ireland is undergoing the most serious crisis in its history due to the international consequences of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And Oireachtas members are invited to that meeting today. Assume that includes yourself, it includes Simon Coveney, Antish hall Martin, Minister McGrath uh, and others. Uh, do you know how many will attend?
6: Uh, I don't, but there's three separate sessions, so I may not see all of those. Uh, gentlemen and the ladies who represent Cork um, in the in those meetings. but yes, I think every all eighteen TDs and whatever many senators are in the county have been invited. And I think that there will be management from Cork Airport. We'll be raising a lot of these issues, um, but some of them do go wider. Like, I mean, I I am looking forward to understanding. Uh, the perspective of management on this but, like, I mean, this goes further than what the Cork Airport can manage itself and this will lead to uh, clear demands from the government about what needs to be in any kind of strategy for aviation Uh the fact that we don't have one is incomprehensible.
1: Okay, a text from a worker in the airport. I work in the airport the rumours here on the ground are that the government are going to close the airport for six months. Could you give any comment on that? Is that, that probably not going to happen?
6: Well, I I certainly hope not. Um, Look, I mean, we are living in strange times. I hope that that is not possible. Uh, I think that that would not be wise. Um, But look, I mean... I I would have to say, nothing would surprise me at this point in time, but it would be unacceptable and it would be a devastating blow to everyone connected to the airport, all the staff uh, and the families who rely upon them. It would be a devastating blow for Cork uh, and the future of Cork Airport and our connectivity. Look, I mean, if we're serious about Cork being the fastest growing city in the state, surely we need an international airport. Mm-hmm.
1: Fair play. Okay. Uh, And of course, all of the other representatives uh, at cabinet level, we are very disproportionately represented here. We have a lot of clout at cabinet table with the Taoiseach. We have the Minister for Public Expenditure, Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence. uh, And you would hope, wouldn't you, that this airport would be viable into the future or, or supported until it can become viable again?
6: Well, that's exactly what needs to happen. Like, I mean, look, we don't expect, as I say, that the the, the gates will come wide open and that international travel resume as before. Like, I mean, nobody expects that. And indeed, it would be an irresponsible thing to happen. But, like, I mean, I do think we need more clarity. Look, I mean, yes, Corky is well-represented at cabinet, at the time of those appointments I said I will work with uh, government TDs where it's in the best interest of Cork and like, I mean if there is a coherent plan to ensure that Cork is safeguarded and the airport is safeguarded then I will work with them and I will support that but if if you know the Taoiseach and the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Public Expenditure, and uh, anyone else who has a senior Cork position like look now is the time to make that tell uh, if there is clout there now is the time to make it known uh, and to show it and produce Cork voice at the cabinet table. We need it urgently. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I'm doing this, and we're interviewing you not from any party political perspective for you know, be, being on your side or anything. This is purely a Cork issue. This airport is so vital to Cork. Cork can, can you imagine Apple, with its 6,000 staff and the management that need to necessarily flow in and out uh, of Cork, trying to survive with putting senior staff on buses from Dublin. It's, not, it's just not viable.
6: I don't think you could mark Cork internationally as a serious international city for foreign direct investment, for investment of any kind, uh, for the kind of image that we've developed for Cork, unless Cork has a viable international airport. I have no doubt in my mind about that. Uh, we would lose out not only to Dublin, but potentially to Limerick, uh, and indeed places outside of Ireland as well, Um Unless, like, I mean, it is one of the key ingredients that identifies Cork as a major international city. Yeah.
1: And how the powers that be in the government and in the airport facilitate this while trying to cohesively manage the spread of this pandemic and to quell it where possible is really going to be trying to find a needle in a haystack, solution-wise, I think. But we wish... Everyone who attends those meetings, all the very best in their deliberations today. What's uh, obviously clear to everybody, Donica, is that Cork Airport is fighting for its very existence, as I said at the start.
6: Yes, there is no question about that. This is a huge challenge. I don't underestimate that for one minute. It will take, uh, I think, careful management. It will take careful planning. It will take investment. But, as I say, like, look, the two key priorities, first of all, safeguard the livelihoods uh, of as many jobs as possible to ensure that workers are paid a decent wage and not exploited, uh, and indeed that they're not facing issues of 90 euros a week to feed their families. And then secondly, to ensure this is a strategic asset for Cork Cork needs to grow. For Cork to grow, we need a major international airport. So we need a particular strategy for Cork. It is different to the small airports. It is different to Dublin and Channel.
1: Alright, thank you very much. Sinn Féin, TD for Cork Central, Donegal O'Leary. Uh, thanks for coming on this morning. Now, Ty has been waiting for uh, quite a while and I'll be with you in just about a minute, Tyke.
0: The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter. At Neil Red
1: FM. Hello, very good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy. Back to our phone lines. And thanks for holding tight. Appreciate it. Good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Now, your spouse returned from the U.S. after driving around New York, uh, which isn't easy, I imagine, uh, for approximately 20 years of experience pretty challenging environment, New York. I can imagine so. No, it is, it is gridded, but I, I can imagine there are some fairly vociferous drivers there uh, who have no problem showing their road rage. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Now, insurance costs really is, is where it's at here. Because of extortionate insurance costs here, she decided to try and get an Irish driving license. How easy yeah. was that?
7: Well, they put together a program which in essence was a good program. It, it expedited the process whereby people with foreign licenses outside of the EC could get an, uh, an Irish license. And that was a good thing, and we welcomed it. However, the problem is that the Driving Licenses Authority in this country is ruled by two agencies, the NDLS and the RSA. And they both don't seem to communicate with each other. Or in our case, anyway, they certainly fail to do it.
1: Okay, so the RSA is the, is the Road Safety Association, and the NDLS is the National Driving License something, is it?
7: yeah something of that nature anyway the ndls governs they, they do the they do the the written test aspect of it and they do the instructor est, uh, aspect of it the instructor driver te- uh, uh, lessons and the RSA does the actual uh, practical road test so anyway the my wife joined this program they put together which in essence seemed like a very good one and uh, she completed all aspects of it the written she got a driving uh, record from new york and she uh, was good to go, and they sent her a letter stating that she had completed all aspects of it, the India listed, and that uh, she could uh, that they, she she should hand that letter to the RSA on the date of her test. And this was the problem between the time we got the letter and that we actually the the time we got a test for my wife, it was like two and a half three months, quite a period of time. So anyway, the letter got mislaid, and. Um, I couldn't understand how I got the letter. I said, why, why didn't they inform by email exactly that she had completed all the aspects of the NDLS program and, and send that by email to the RSA? So they would have it on their record. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand in this day and age of instant communication practically.
1: So this is the reduced the driver program. training program. And, yeah, and this and is... streamlined their process like any company would do
7: so that all, both companies were in tune on the same page. Anyway, they didn't do that, so on the day my wife my wife got uh, 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 on the day of her test, we looked around for this letter because it had been so long since we got it we we couldn't find it and uh, so we downloaded a we went on the r s a website and there lo and behold, she put in her driving permit number, her name et cetera, and she downloaded uh, a full confirmation that she was she had completed all aspects of the uh, driver training program. And that she was good to go, that she, she, she could now go ahead with a test. Okay. So we thought, well, this will suffice, this will be good. Um, How long did she have to, to wait for a test then? It was about two and a half months.
1: Two and a half months to wait for a test.
7: Yeah, that's why the letter got mislaid. So anyway, uh, I thought, well, this is going to do, this will suffice, the, man, the tester will surely accept this, you know, um, because he's an RSA employee himself. So on the morning of the test, uh, I left my wife at the test center and I, I walked into Skibberine where she was doing the test. And I walked into a restaurant, Alan. Uh, this, this is a little irrelevant maybe to you, but a gentleman joined me while I was there because the restaurant was packed and he was having his breakfast on the other side of the table. And, and anyway, I suddenly got a call from my wife and uh, she was in tears saying how the tester was very abrupt and rude with her. Uh, and dismissive, and that uh, he demanded to see the letter from the NDLS. So my wife said she couldn't get it right now, but if necessary, uh, could he, she not take, her, could he not take her for the test, and she would go home and get the letter afterwards and bring it back to him. She would find it. I said no, she didn't want that. He wanted the letter right now. So she said, well, you have a computer on your desk there. Uh, you can download what we ourselves have downloaded, and you can see that we're, she's a bonus fee candidate to do the test it's not a problem it it has been okayed by the rsa your employers so he said that that's not my job um so at this stage she was in teal she said i have a downloaded copy version here i'll give it to you You wouldn't accept that either so there was simply no 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 we couldn't engage she couldn't engage with this guy so that's why she called me up in teal so i went up and i waited for the gentleman and lo and behold, that was the same gentleman that went for breakfast and it was opposite me below the restaurant. Wow, okay. now, maybe not here or there, but anyway... Um, I, got, I, I uh, uh, attempted to engage with him. I said, look, why don't you just be reasonable? Pick up the phone, call the NDLS and verify that she's going to feed a candidate. I said, well, we're, I'm in a bad situation. I said, I'm going for surgery in about three weeks. We'll be confined to the house. There'll be no, we won't be able to travel without my wife having a license, an Irish license. I said, this is imperative that we do this. Uh, I, I, he wasn't having any of it. wouldn't engage with me. At all, uh, I, I said we're in a dilemma. I'm going to Belfast for my surgery. I just will be in an awful situation. Just take off, no good. I didn't ask him why. Why the NDLS hadn't sent this by email to the RSA if she was if they were demanding this? Still no good. So there was there was a holy hell row broke out between the two of us.
1: Now the two um, government I, departments, you'd imagine that they'd have instant information transfer. Didn't,
7: couldn't couldn't transmit a very simple piece of information from one to the other. It was costing me eighty five euros for the test and I would have to pay for another test now again. I would have to wait another three or four months and it as it turns out that was about eight or nine months ago because of the pandemic now screwed things up again. But um so I, I was like I was I was really, really upset at the guy. I think if I was a young man I probably couldn't contain myself. But the fact that I'm an older man uh, with, with, with a hip injury, I just said to myself, I've just got to back away from this. So he basically ushered us out of Rob, told us, get out, or he called the guards on us. And uh, I then got onto the RSA. I complained about his attitude. I complained about the system they have of, of the NDLS not communicating by the internet or the email with, with the RSA, and that it was a ridiculous situation in the 21st century. And I also paid for another test.
1: 85 euros? I, Pardon? 85 euros?
7: Yes, and I demanded that um, that please, please, earnestly do not give us the same tester because I feel that he will be prejudiced, he, he, he'll be biased and I feel that he won't give my wife an impartial test. Well, lo and behold who comes along when she does get a test eventually? Same guy and he fails her with nine different points. Now obviously she's good enough to drive in New York but she can't negotiate Skibarine successfully, and she failed the test anyway. You're
1: going to have and, to uh, take it to we, a different we, testing center,
7: maybe. We paid for another test again, but it has left us confined to our home, uh, Michael. We can't go outside because I'm I'm recuperating from my, my, my surgery was delayed uh, just after the surgery now. I can't leave. Uh, I have six-week recuperation. My wife can't drive on an American license. And we're depending on friends to take us to the doctors, to get the grocery stores, the whole bit, all over a person to me who was just guilty of dereliction of duty, who just didn't want to do his job. And I feel it's, it's just rude. And, and, and fully enough, the RSA wrote me a letter back afterwards defending their process, defending the way this was handled. Uh, even though I pointed out to them, you know, a simple email from one agency, government agency to, to another, would have been so easy. And he could also have tapped it out on his computer. He could have picked up the phone. He could have done anything. But he wasn't prepared to do anything to further our situation or to help in any shape or form.
1: Or to help clear the backlog created by COVID-19.
7: Absolutely. I, I just feel that, is this the island we're living in now? You know, when I was living in this country many years ago, I, 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 I just felt that people were more helpful. They, they, they'd, they'd go the extra mile to help out. So you wouldn't be put in, in the situation we now find ourselves. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, my my son got his driving test in early august mid august uh, after having a proposed test on the, like kind of late march which was obviously everything was shut down on the 14th of march and yeah. so a whole round of more driving refreshing lessons had to happen and, and then the test and got his license thankfully okay uh, and then applied to i think it's the ndls for uh, you've got to go in and fill out the forms bring in your passport bring in a photograph all that kind of thing to get the actual license. Uh, and it was, it was uh, yeah, come back in six weeks. 25th of September. Uh, oh. Wow, okay. No, you know when a young guy gets a license, he he wants Absolutely. to actually have the physical the license the so he can go driving. Absolutely. So, so we rang around and tried every other MDLS, including Dublin, the, the whole thing, uh, just to try and get a different date. You know where we had to go to get the li- literally 10-minute interview? Where do we have to drive to? have clue. Castle Bar. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God. That's a 600-kilometre journey round trip. That is um, absolutely ridiculous. So there is something definitely wrong uh, in the situation. i I do, you know, you have to be cognizant of the fact that there is a huge backlog because of COVID-19. Oh,
7: you have to... This, this, this actually occurred, my, our situation occurred before the pandemic, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, did it? Okay, uh, I'm sorry, okay. Yeah, yeah
7: but... Uh, uh, no, no. I quite understand the, the situation now with the pandemic. All the all the parameters are after changing now. It's completely different. But uh, I, I just feel that with a bit of helpfulness and, and a little bit of understanding, or whatever, and, and a simple email, this could all have been avoided. Put us in a, a horrible situation here at home. I was up in Belfast. I couldn't. I had to hire. I had to pay a guy to drive me down from Belfast. Cost me three hundred dollars to drive down from Belfast. My wife couldn't come up for me. Uh-huh.
1: Crazy. Oh, it gives you a bad taste in your mouth about Ireland, doesn't it? It's, it's quite upsetting, to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay, relax. Just take yeah. a breath. I, 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 I'm going to read a little bit of your email to finish up, Ty, okay? Nice. Uh, this, yeah, just hang on a second. Um Neil, I bring okay. to your attention that approximately 30 years ago, the late Gay Warren had two people on his show from the UK. One was a racing driver, the other was an actual driver tester. They both came over covertly due to the high failure rates in Ireland, so they came in secretly. Uh, had tests applied for, and they both failed the test here and the suspicion was that testers were creating overtime for themselves by wrongly failing people who should normally have passed just goes to show what happens when government agencies are not closely monitored that 's the end of your email but look yeah, yeah you live in hope you 're going to get a test are you 're going to take the get her to take the test elsewhere oh god um, uh, well. If you got
7: another test, be, we'd be agreeable to that. We just don't want the other test, that's all. You know? I know, I understand.
1: <laughs> yeah, Ty, Ta- yeah. I feel for you. Thank you very much for yeah, your yeah. so eloquently telling us your time, situation. Time to talk to you. Thanks a million. All the best. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. But to have to go to Castlebar from Cork to get a license printed in anything less than
0: six weeks, it's truly farcical. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086 8104 106. Red FM. And
1: well, a very good morning to you. This is Mick Mulcahy. Now, the voice of reason when a Comes to motoring madness when it comes to prices and uh, all of the uh, heavy duties that we're subjected to in Ireland uh, is the AA's Connor Faulkner who joins me on the line. Good morning, Connor. Good morning, Mick. Hello. And- how are things? Now, the majority of people in Ireland believe high insurance costs are making it more difficult for young and learner drivers to get on the road. Uh, I know you weren't listening in the last hour, but my own son went through it. There's been a, there, there was a, you know, obviously a cancellation because of COVID. Then the driving lessons had to be refreshed. Then the cost of the, of the thing. Then you can't get a license printed for six weeks. Yeah. I, had to, I had to drive to Castlebar from Cork to get the license printed. So all that kind of thing. It's not easy for motorists in general, but particularly for young drivers. How many insurance companies will insure a young 18-year-old fully licensed driver now? Well,
8: they can't shop the whole market. So, you know, if you're in the mainstream risk category, like myself, I suppose, you know, middle-aged, nothing special about me, reasonably good on claims and all that, and an occupation that doesn't see me out and about, that makes me a pretty much mainstream insurance risk. Now, the industry competes for those risks. They want that business. But when you become high risk, an outlier, you just don't have the same range to shop around amongst. So if you're an 18, 19 year old, maybe want to go to college um, with the COVID arrangements, maybe you do need a car, maybe, you know, you're not going to move up to the city because you're only in college one day a week, but you're going to need the car, whatever it might be. You find yourself in a situation where the industry sees you as high risk. And while you can get a quote, it's not a good value quote. I mean, you're really not the focus of competition and you feel that in terms of price. And it's not just young drivers, although it is. It's also other categories. If you have numbers of penalty points, for example, if you're a returning immigrant, so you don't have an insurance track record built up in Ireland, you're outside the mainstream and you're paying over the odds. And I think the frustration, Mick, is that if you look at the whole market, the price is coming down. The average price for insurance is coming down Um, but that's not going to mean an awful lot if you're a young person trying to get on the road the the first time and as you say all the other COVID obstacles in front of you but the biggest single one probably is the cost of your insurance and it's still way too high.
1: When you get for an 18 year old an insurance quote, albeit for a fully licensed 18 year old driver now of 7,300 euros Mm. you kind of get the implicit uh, message that we don't want your business and if if we do you'll pay handsomely for Mm. it
8: well, that's right indeed and in fact if you get declined there's something called the declined cases agreement um, and this is because motor insurance is compulsory you have to have it so if nobody will give you motor insurance you get three letters from insurance companies denying you you bring them to the declined cases people and they will instruct one of the insurers to quote you but it doesn't mean you like the quote and as you say people are being quoted more for the cost of insurance than the car is worth. Mm-hmm. Literally you know have to spend more for insurance than it costs them to buy the car. Uh, and this is crazy. It, it, it uh, It's not completely unique to Ireland, but it's pretty unique to Ireland. Right. Most other countries just don't suffer in the same way. And we really do treat our young people unfairly in that regard. The most expensive period of your driving is, is when you're young and you can least afford it And um, now. It is true you've got more accident risk for young people. It is reasonable that their insurance is more expensive, but it's a question of degree. And if you have an industry furiously competing for my business and yours, Mick, mm-hmm. um, but, but essentially leaving the outsiders outside and not caring a great deal about them, then you wind up in the situation that we're in now.
1: Okay, so high insurance costs are by no means restricted to any single group of motorists, but they are, of course, directed really at the youngsters. And is there a male-female bias here? Is is it easier to get for a young lady insurance than it is for a young man? Not
8: anymore, but only because that's illegal. Um, And, you know, you could debate whether that was a good thing or not. Personally, I don't think it was a good thing, but this was a European insurance directive from a number of years ago, which made it illegal to discriminate on the basis of gender. So there's no such thing as a woman driver anymore. Um, Now, you might think that's good or bad. Personally, I think it's bad because essentially what it means is that uh, women who are lower risk, genuinely lower risk, uh, are effectively forced to subsidise groups that are higher risk. Um, so you know you can have an, you can have equality or you can have fairness, Mick. But by definition, you can't have both, and, and, and that's a system that's equalised rather than made fair. But there's no no such thing as a woman driver anymore in that sense.
1: Okay, and I know you represent the AA, Connor, and and, and the AA are insurance brokers, not actual insurers. Yeah. Is that correct?
8: Yeah, we sell it. So, you know, put my hands up and say we're conflicted, if you like. We sell motor insurance. Now, we get it off uh, motor insurers, and we've got, you know, obviously we're large, so we've got a big, big database. We have well over a 100,000, so we can drive a good price. So we take them on the shins and get a good price, which we can then sell on to our customers. Uh, But it's not the same as being an insurance company. We don't truly get to control pricing um, or how it's filtered and graded. And to be fair to the insurance companies who supply us, Uh, I suppose I have to be honest and say that, you know, they're the ones who are the bookies, they're the ones who have to pay out on claims. Um, So, you know, it is up to them to strike a price for that. We can twist their arm and get a good price, but we're not actually the insurance providers and we don't pay the claims, so we don't really get to set the price.
4: Okay, are you in
1: a position to comment on the likes of perhaps Boximo, who are facilitating a lot of young drivers now because of their GPS technology?
8: They are, and it can work very well. I mean, the concept there is you carry a GPS tracker in your car and it will um, report back to hub on your driving behavior. So say, for example, you have one of these Boximo devices in your car and you frequently break speed limits around the county. Well, the device will warn the insurance hub that this car is breaking speed limits and you will then break the terms of your insurance and you can find yourself facing penalties, et cetera. So it is a good mechanism in my view, to sort of demonstrate good faith and give you a chance to earn your reputation, earn your no claims discount. And so I wouldn't put people off it, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's it's rather pitiful that it should be necessary. Um, and you know, it's, it, A lot of drivers don't like it. I mean, there is something, perhaps it's an Irish thing. Nobody truly wants a tracker in their car following their movements. It's an idea that would put you off, wouldn't it? But if it's a way to get a reduced insurance price, at least for the first couple of years, that's Mm. something many young people will will, will go for, yeah.
1: Okay. And uh, I suppose, you know, to play the devil's advocate on that one, somebody said to me, it's, you know, it's like having for my son or my daughter a, a fully fledged driver in the passenger seat.
8: Mm. Well, in a sense, I, I mean, it's a permanent tracker, and it will report if you behave badly. And, um, you know, it's been said before in civil liberties com- conversations, you know, only the innocent, only the only the guilty of anything to fear, the innocent of nothing to fear. But, you know, it's still an uncomfortable feeling. Nobody wants to be watched 24-7. There is a sense of privacy there. Uh, it, it feels a little intrusive. Perfectly reasonable if it's what gets you on the road as a young person for you know, if it's the only way to get an acceptable price and and it's and it's okay by you, uh, then go ahead. I wouldn't warn people off it. But as I say, it's inhibited in its popularity because we are human beings. We don't mm-hmm. truly enjoy um Signing up for that degree of close supervision, unless we have to. Okay,
1: in general, uh, Connor, how do you feel that the pandemic has served industries like yourselves? Industries like perhaps mobile telephones, uh, industries perhaps like uh, satellite TV. People have had an awful lot of time to shop around.
8: Yeah, they have. And, you know, some industries are are coming through it better than others. And the AA is quite a diverse thing. I mean, motor insurance, yes. Uh, Motor insurance sales are okay. Our breakdown service, surprisingly busy. It's been busy all the way through. Now, we we, we are doing free breakdown call-outs for anybody who's who's working in the health services in the front line. It bumps up the numbers a little bit. But, But despite what you hear, traffic and activity on the roads has continued through the COVID period. And it's actually very busy these days now, particularly in the cities, Dublin, Cork, Limerick. Uh, so that part is okay. Travel insurance, which we also sell, 100% wiped out. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. massive, massive growth to the business. We also um, provide a quality assurance scheme. We inspect hotels. So, you know, a four-star AA hotel, a three-star AA hotel. We're very um, successful at uh, business inspecting and grading hotels. So it's
1: almost like a uh, Michelin star what? For, for what? For, yeah. for cleanliness yeah. or for...
8: Well, yes, for 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 hotels at the upper end, typically. So, uh, you know, AA will award four stars and five stars to hotels. So, the best Irish hotels in in Cork, in Ulster, okay. in Ireland, will be inspected by the AA. But of course, in the year that's in it, I mean, that just completely wiped out. We we, we immediately told all the hotels we'd be, we, we'd make no charge this year, so we'd no income from that business. So, you know. Parts of the, parts of the economy are, are not unaffected, but are coming through smelling of roses. Other parts of the economy are effectively wiped out. Uh, if, if I'm a broadband company, uh, I'm probably quite enjoying this. If I'm a hotel or a, or a city centre bar, um, or, or a coffee shop, it, it, it's a disaster. So I think that the pandemic feels unfair just because it's so capricious and so uneven in in how it's hitting some people harder than others. And, you know, I guess we feel a little bit lucky for some parts of our business, but others are taking a big hit.
1: Okay. And uh, in your, your own business, in the AA, the insurance side has not been leaned upon to deliver more results and therefore not pass on the savings because of the other well, you, failing you or, you know, end quiet end for the you, moment
8: you, elements? You simp- yeah, you simply can't. I mean, you, 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 you can't um, get get blood from the stone. You have to realise the entire country, the entire economy is facing this pinch. So, you know, our customers don't have any more money. and I, I, I would imagine even in you know, the media industry, when you're engaging with partners and selling advertising, you know, you, you, you can't make one advertiser pay more because your income is challenged. Mm-hmm. We just can't do that. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of us are having to manage and not to mention the huge disruption of getting people working from home and everything like that, but I mean, I'm, I'm conscious we feel a little bit luckier than most perhaps, and you know, resilient enough to come through it, our core business pretty strong, um, but you, you know I I consider us lucky in that regard there are other very well run very well capitalised superb businesses employing people in Ireland uh, and they're facing just a massive challenge with this pandemic um, and you know my, my, my heart, heart goes out to them I think they do need to be supported and uh, we do need to we do need to stick together if we're going to get through this
1: Yeah I, I drove from Donegal yesterday and um, the M50 was particularly busy Connor. Oh, uh, the, yeah. the, there's, there's four, four tolls on the way Patrick Pierce would turn in his grave how the Irish paint holes on their own roads. I also have a friend in the north who said, No, we never want to be part of the public. We can drive on the Queen's Highway for free. Uh, mm. and, and there is that. What about the oppressed motorists? Just a general comment from if you would. The, you know, the motorists here are oh. paying car tax, VRT, which is completely, intrinsically anti European, and other uh, punitive taxes on fuel, etc.
8: Well, it piles up because, uh, I mean, for generations, um, governments come back and they keep touching the motorists for more. So there's some legacy taxes there that are. Utterly unfair. Vehicle registration tax, in theory, a tax on the registration plate, in theory. And it's between 20% and 30% of the value of the cars. The reason why cars are so expensive in Ireland is BRT. And it's a scam. Should never have been allowed in a single European market. It's a Swiss and they've kept it. And there's also massive taxes on fuels. If you spend uh, 20 euro on fuel, you're actually giving about 14 euro of that straight to the government in tax astonishing how much of it there is and and the reason for this is that motorists are easy to hit and the other thing that i think is a little sinister these days like is that is that government now are essentially using new excuses for the old taxes because now if you feel like extracting money from motorists because you need the money you can just claim you're doing it for the sake of the planet you know you can you can say environment and that forgives you for kicking the motorist again. And this is a frustration, and more so because there are positive things government can do if they truly did care about the environment. Supporting electric vehicles, for example. you know, it, it, Government 10 years ago did a really good job persuading us to buy diesel. Buy diesel, it's a clean thing to do, said the government. And they gave us the tax incentives and we bought diesel in droves. We would do the same for electric, but they're not giving us that sort of tax break. Instead, they're blaming us for buying diesel and looking to push up the taxes on that. So it, it's no surprise that the motorist gets frustrated at just being permanently looked on as the cash cow when government wants money, and then these days being insulted in the process as, mm-hmm. if, as if we were environmental vandals. So it, it, it's pretty frustrating for the typical Irish motorist these days.
1: Yeah, I'm aware as well as a parent, as I'm sure you are, or will be, Uh, that young people have to drive cars because they have to factor in the insurance costs. Cars that border on being crappy, just barely getting through NCTs uh, because they can't apportion uh, enough of a budget to get a decent car because the insurance is so high.
8: That's right. And with cars getting progressively safer, the passive safety systems in cars are just, Exponential improvement there. The younger a car is, the safer a car is, and also if we do genuinely care about the environment, the younger a car is, the cleaner a car is by a mile. So if you've got economic circumstances forcing an individual, you know, to be a family people, not necessarily the youngsters we're talking about, anybody could be in a situation where it does not make economic sense for them to have a clean, green car. It's just too expensive. They have to use the old diesel um, because it's there and you know, they, they need to make use out of it. And hitting those people by pushing up the price of diesel, for example, is unfair in two ways. I mean, it, it, it's unfair to the individual who doesn't have a choice. He's just pushing up his cost of living. and are not solving the damn pain. And also, in a broader sense, it's unfair to the broader environmental conversation because it doesn't do much for your credibility if you use climate change as an excuse for tax hikes, when you then want to come back and talk to us seriously about climate change and what and the things that Ireland needs to do. So, um, you know, motorists on the front line of this, as always, there'll be a budget next month. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not anticipating that it will be a happy day for us.
1: No, I um, don't think so, because, we you know, you, you, you we, we can champion environmentalism, and you and I would say, you know, I'm all for that, but you won't achieve it by regressive taxation methods.
8: No, you won't. I mean, and no matter what your stated purpose is, what actually happens is that you push up the cost of living for the tier in society that can least afford for you to do that. So you're not achieving your desired objectives. Now, if they were to introduce a scrappage scheme whereby you could scrap a 10-year-old diesel car uh, and, and buy a new electric... Well, now that could be an idea with great potential. Mm -hmm. You might then encourage people to trade in the older cars and buy newer, cleaner, greener. Uh, That's a positive measure. doesn't make much in tax for the exchequer. But it's a positive measure, and we'd certainly support something like that. Whereas the lazy um, attitude of, you know what, we'll throw another couple of cents on petrol and diesel, that'll bring in a fair few million quid, and we can claim we love the planet while we're doing it. That (laughs) sort of lazy thinking uh, serves nobody. Can
1: can I ask you one other industry that's been severely affected, maybe not so bad now as it was four four or five months ago, is the taxi industry. And I've Mm. said this to uh, politicians in all now, including, who have become five Taoiseach. OK, they weren't t Taoiseach when I said it to them, um, but in all five of them have now occupied the top spot. Why are we charging uh, regressive VRT on cars that go into public service? For instance, if a top of the range Mercedes could come in from Germany into Ireland and be fee free as because it's going into public service for the, you know, for you're helping tourism, you're helping emissions, you're helping safety. Uh, surely that car going into public service should be v r t free and then must stay in public service for perhaps ten years
8: yeah well, that makes sense to me, and we 've said it before and if you people have had the experience if you go to germany um Every taxi you get into is an E-class Mercedes. It just is. Or Spain, uh, and or the Canaries. Indeed, yeah. Whereas in Ireland, it could be anything. And there is a little bit of a blend there. You have individuals who will operate as taxis, but will also use that car as a private car. Uh, but, you know, you can figure that out. I mean, it's not beyond the wit of man to sort that. And in principle, a vehicle going into public service, being exempt from some taxes, to enable the taxi driver to have a better quality vehicle on the road uh, at no additional cost to him, um,
1: that makes perfect sense. I can't see who loses Uh, out. We have a a question, if you don't mind, Connor, um, from a listener. Uh, When a company wants you to drive for them, obviously on their insurance, Mm -hmm. does anything that happen affect your private insurance and if so how?
8: Well, um, it depends on your private insurance. If you've just got social and uh, social, domestic and personal private insurance, which most of us have, you don't use that car for work. Uh, If you're driving your employer's car, um then that's fine, you work away. But you wouldn't have a circumstance where your employer is, is is asking you to use your private car um to do work deliveries, for example, and you on your private insurance, which is only social, domestic and personal. And um, that would be a, a most unusual employment arrangement. I, I'm, I'm most unusual. And from the point of view of insurance, I'm afraid you would not be properly covered for insurance. Now you wouldn't be illegal on the road. Uh, But what would happen is that if you had to make a claim, let's say you're delivering um, whatever it might be, delivering cakes for your boss uh, in your private car with your private insurance. If that car has a crash, the insurance company would be quite within its rights not to pay the claim. Now, they'll always pay the third-party part of the claim. So you crash into somebody else. They'll pay for somebody else, but they won't pay for you. And their basis there will be that you are using that car for business purposes and you only insured it for social and domestic use. It's a common reason why claims don't get paid uh, and it's not the insurance company being the swathes. In fact, I always say to people you've got to be honest with the insurance company when you're taking out the policy. If you are um, playing in a band and you're gigging in, in pubs at night and you're using your car to bring the equipment to and from the pubs, but you don't say that to the insurance company, you tell them it's just your private car, you've lied to the insurance company you've lied to them in a contract we're trying to remind Boris about that these days but you entered into a contract and you signed up for it and in that circumstance the insurance company won't pay the claim and I'm sorry but you can see why
1: two wonderful words written in the papers over the weekend Connor, by two former prime ministers of the UK uh, John Major and um, oh who's the other guy Oh, uh, Tony Blair uh, yeah. and, and their words, they wrote the article together, but they said Boris is acting with cavalier bombast. I thought it was a, a lovely <laughs> lovely selection of words. Well, just, just to get back to that point, if you're driving, for instance, a company van uh, mm-hmm. owned by the company or leased by the company on the company yeah. insurance and you have an accident, does that affect yeah. your personal insurance?
8: No, it would not, unless you're held to be at fault. If you had something like a drink driving condition, for example. Okay. But you would have to declare a claim. You would have to declare a claim. So let's say you're renewing. Let's say you're driving the boss's van and you have an accident in a claim, whatever it might be, um, whatever it is, a claim. You then go to renew your personal insurance. Um, one of the questions is, have you had a claim in the last five years? You must answer Yes. You must answer yes, even if it wasn't um, while driving on your own insurance policy. Likewise, if you're in a hire car, you might be in a hire car and, uh, you know, it's not your insurance policy because it's our our company's insurance policy, but you have a crash and you have a claim, you must disclose that claim to the insurance company when they ask you. Um, It's a material fact, so you you, you have to disclose it. Um, Interestingly, there are some changes to the rules on how um, consumer insurance contracts are being set up and worked. They're sort of skewing it a little bit um, to to ensure that the consumer is fully informed of these things and to uh, prevent insurance companies... uh, unreasonably refusing to pay claims. I'm not sure that's a huge problem I think the source of the problem to be honest with you is the consumer very typically uh, doesn't take the fine print seriously. Uh, have you any penalty points? Ah sure I'll say no because I'm sure the price will be cheaper. Yeah, you know, listen. You have and that's to, voiding your
1: insurance uh, Yeah,
8: exactly, when the insurance company find out about that they will refuse to pay all but the third party aspect of the claim
1: and who can blame them. One yeah. one other uh, question uh, Connor, sorry, is is one of the first questions you're asked on a new insurance proposal form is has insurance ever been cancelled on you? Now this could inadvertently have happened during COVID-19 if for instance your income had dropped significantly and you missed one or two uh, direct debits and that really will yeah. put you in, in a bad spot for the future, wouldn't it?
8: Yes, it would, I'm afraid. Um, yes, it would, because when you pay your insurance by the month, you've actually entered into a year-long contract with the insurance company, a bit like your broadband or your mobile, if you like, and you you decided to pay monthly because it suits you economically. Um, if you don't make the payments, um, the insurance company will, you know, with notice and whatever mm. the terms are... Will cancel can, on you. Yeah, they can cancel on you. And then when the next insurance company asks you, have you ever had a policy cancelled? You know, the answer will have to be yes, because you have to be honest with them. Now there's plenty of honest reasons for doing that. You know, I could have, you know, three months into my insurance year, I got a job in England. Uh, so cheerio, I'm going to cancel. And then, I'll, you know, I come back That's two okay. years later. Those sort of things happen all the time. But the basic principle to keep in your mind is don't lie to the insurance company.
1: I'm keeping you very long, Connor. There's there's a caller asking if she's delivering from Meals on Wheels, a charity, for an hour a week. She's still covered.
8: She is still covered, yes. She doesn't for need that, to declare that. that. She is still covered for that, yeah. Okay. Now, individual insurance policies differ. So check the small print in your insurance policy. There may be an exclusion. Sometimes people will get a very, very cheap insurance policy. Look, I got mine 50 quid cheaper than yours. And then you look at it and a whole load of standard extras like driving other cars, etc., are stripped out and removed. So you better just check that policy, the meals on wheels lady. You better just check her own policy that it doesn't have a restriction, but it would be unusual for an
1: activity like that. That you know know what I find very handy, Connor, is that there's one person in the house that deals with the insurances and it isn't me. Um,
8: <laughs> That's the best way to keep it error-free, isn't it?
1: <laughs> you're, you're the Director of Consumer Affairs at, at AA Roadwatch, uh, Connor. That's right. Uh, you have, if I may say, become quite the Dermot Bannon of the consumer affairs industry. Has uh, Vodafone please, or anyone please. come calling for adverts or anything like that now? <laughs>
8: Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit busy with the day job at the moment. It's a very busy place, the AA at the moment, and COVID is not make it any easier. But, um, yeah, look, we do, this is what the AA does. We've been doing it for 100 years. Uh, sadly, I've been doing it for 30 of those 100 years. Um, but I, I, I'm still sort of um, part of the long-term legacy of the AA rather than uh, So when I, when I talk to you with, with some depth of knowledge about matters insurance or matters motoring, it, it, it's not because I'm any sort of genius. It's because the 500 or so people that I work with in the AA Really do have that knowledge and they, you know it's great to be able to do that for the consumer.
1: Yeah, it's the voice hundreds of thousands of people of course will recognize because you're when you're holding. It's it's Connor Faulkner who's talking to you. Thanks a million, Connor. Always great Thanks to talk indeed. to you. Thanks, bye bye. Connor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs at AA Roadwatch. It's
0: eleven thirty. Call the Neil Prenderville show now, 1850-104-106. Red FM.
1: And you can email the program neil at redfm.ie. You can text 086 or call 1850 Lines are open for another 45 minutes or so. And by text, my daughter wants to book her driving theory test. The earliest available test is next March. What is going on? A primary school in North Cork has become the third in the county to record a COVID-19 case, and the HSC has been carrying out a public health assessment uh, after alerting parents and staff. that Skull Vrida in the village of, or Vrida, is it, in the village of Rathcormac, which is south of Fremoy, uh They've contacted the families of over 400 children to say a case had been identified. I wonder in general, a couple of weeks in, how the opening of schools is going. We seem to be getting peppered with information uh, or, you know, the peppering of, of, of schools that have had cases, have had closed, has closed classes, have sent pods home. But a primary school in North Cork has become the third in the county to record a COVID-19 case. And the HSC has been carrying out a public health risk assessment after alerting parents and staff. All of this will make, uh, of course, tomorrow's roadmap, the five stages, uh, be examined very critically by anyone who's a stakeholder. And I suppose we all are from a health perspective in what happens in the continuing battle against Covid Uh, talking to my niece over the weekend uh, and I said how are you getting on at school it's terrible to wear a mask from start to finish all the way through I said what Uh, I can barely wear one myself going into a shop Uh, but these kids apparently have to wear masks all day long and on that uh, we got a text are there any parents out there willing to protest at schools about the abuse of our kids being made to wear masks six and a half hours a day including break time My daughter has a nasty sore throat since she returned and I'm contemplating leaving, uh, or leaving her out of school as it's causing her ill health and distress. If it's unsafe, why the hell the day open? And this is, uh, a line at the end of the text which really caught me and, and it's, it's a pretty good one. Here's the end of the text. We're making healthy people sick to keep sick people healthy. What a joke, says a concerned mum. And even the kids, I believe, are wearing the masks in PE, in physical education, because of their proximity to other people. Uh, so wearing masks all the time, from you, the time you enter the school gate, uh, of course you have to take it off to have your lunch, but other than that, its uh, it seems to be very restrictive on some children, uh, and maybe it will be uh, a policy going forward because of the outbreaks that are happening here and there. Now let's go to line two and to Gina. Gina, thanks for holding. Hi, Gina. Hello. Hi, how are you Hi. doing? How are you? I'm good. Uh, Should I tend to waffle on. Thanks for holding there.
9: <laughs> it's okay.
1: <laughs> now, uh, you think there's too much talk about the pubs opening and the schools. Um,
0: tell me all about it.
9: Not the schools as much, but the pubs. And I was just... saying um, my other daughter due a baby shortly. Mm-hmm. She's gone through a problem pregnancy. She's been in and out of the hospital on a regular basis alone. And I just think that... Of all people, their partners should be allowed in for scans, for doctor's visits, for labour. At the moment, they're only allowing fathers or partners to be in for the last stage of labour and then for an hour afterwards. And then they don't see them until mother baby, until they're ready to go home.
1: And Gina, don't don't forget the most harrowing of all. I mean, I can only imagine the, you know, the trauma that a body goes through during labour. But what about miscarriage?
9: Yes, well, I'll tell you, I've been in the maternity ward for babies, miscarriages. I was my daughter's birthing partner, so I know exactly what it's like from all different angles. And if I didn't have my husband there at all times, I don't know what I'd have done, because, you know, all of them are very, very emotional. And those women last week going on about the miscarriage was is, is horrible. Uh because you need you're like the the staff are fantastic, but they're they're only they're doing a job basically and they are great. But you need somebody to hold your hand and you know it's frightening for um mothers to be going through this. I know now there's some second and third time mothers say, Oh God, this is great and I'm in there for rest but um And I think the guidelines may cause a bit of difficulty with bonding. May, may not, I don't know. I know the staff have to safeguard their patients, and especially the new babies.
1: And safeguard themselves.
9: And themselves, but these people live together.
1: They live together, they shouldn't be a danger to each other.
9: They can go in, put on masks, scrub them down. Put on masks, put on PPE gear, put on gloves, you know, sanitiser, spray them when they're going in and out.
1: Prospective fathers always had to put on PPE, I think. Yes. Uh, Even before the COVID pandemic. Yeah, yeah. You're you're going into a sterile environment. You're not coming in in your work clothes and your jeans.
9: No, no, definitely not. So that was just my point because I was listening to pubs and I was just getting madder and madder. So I said i had been And I think it's sad for these men to drop their partners at the door of the hospital saying, you know, I'll wait for the phone call. They could be waiting two days.
1: Mm-hmm. you see the one thing this pandemic and and certain communications that are released surrounding it it'll always throw up some sort of anomaly a like i mentioned this morning hsc stopping testing in in meat plants but yet next yeah. monday this day week when the pubs open you have to keep yeah. the tv volume down to keep your vocal level down because you don't want to be talking over the tv because you'll be spreading the virus i mean come on and then you you have you have three or four maybe i don't know there's a, there, there's a picture of the National Convention or the Convention Centre that they're hiring for 25 or 50 grand a day to facilitate Dáil Air and, and in 200 seats there are three TDs yeah. and yet, you know, even though the, the airlines have a valid concern that they're only operating at 5 or 10%, you will see airplanes it's full. Operating. You will yeah. see. I've, go I've got a, got a oh, picture definitely. picture on Facebook Messenger last week uh, of uh, friends go- going to Spain they're moving there for good and uh, the plane is absolutely full
9: yeah just it. and the funny thing, my daughter you know and she 's not a medic at all, but she's swabbed most weeks because of the work she does, but i 'm not sure about the staff in the COMH or the CUH are they swabbed on a regular basis i'd like to know that too
1: okay, but how, how can you have six people in your house say say two each from three different houses, and that's coming in tomorrow that's i think in the in the UK or today or tomorrow in the u k as well uh, yeah. and not have the support of a partner at appointments at scans but especially during labour, and most especially, for God's sake, during miscarriage.
9: Yeah, yeah. It's awful. It's very sad. And don't mind that. What about the poor grannies waiting to see their new grandchildren?
1: What about them? They've got to wait longer, is it?
9: Yeah. Sure, you can't. There's only the father allowed in for the birth, and that's it. until They're collecting mother and child.
1: And is there a look, look okay through longer. the window facility, or is it all supposed to be done now on social media?
9: Uh, social media. That's oh. all. So, anyway.
1: I suppose if there's any consolation, the, the, the time that ladies spend in hospital now is less. They, they will get home with the child.
9: Oh, they will, but, uh, you
1: know. The special moment, moment in the visiting the and all that kind of stuff is gone, yeah. <laughs> well,
9: whatever about the visiting, but the dads need to see their babies. They all need to bond. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to
1: bond. Fair to enough. Babies. Okay, Gina, thank you very much. Thanks very much for the call. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, you can call the show, 1850104106. Uh, 0868104106 is our text. And you can email neil at redfm.ie. Now, on Dying with Dignity, uh, we'll come to it... Uh, we have John O'Donovan on line one. Sorry, yeah, sorry, John. Wrong line there. How are you doing? Morning. How are you, sir? The Dying with Dignity bill is going to really scare the elderly here. It's dangerous, you say, and you're not in favour of it.
10: No. Uh, tomorrow, um, Gina Kenny. Uh, from people for profit, is uh, putting this bill or trying to get this bill through the door. This this bill was trying to be put through the door before by former minister John Halligan, and um, he introduced uh, a previous version of this right. Now uh, I spoke to a lot of people out there, I know, the elderly people, people with conditions and whatever, make and they are terrified of this right, absolutely terrified right. Now, they're going to be calling off period of 14 days when you make the decision, right? Now, we're told that it'd be very restrictive, that two medical practitioners, including one independent doctor, must agree that the person meets the criteria,
1: right? Well, one of those and criteria then, would be capacity.
10: Yeah, yeah, this is it. But the, the whole thing about it is, I mean... Look, this to me has opened the floodgates because it looks like, according to John Halligan, he said, like, and I'm quoting directly from a piece in the exam on Saturday, he said, this would be a major advance, advancement for the social fabric of the country Or just to get through. So a major uh, advancement for the social fabric of this country is making it legal for the kill people. That's exactly what he's saying. Now, Mick Clifford did a podcast up there with Professor Desone Neal there, and people can listen to it there, right? And he said, hold on a minute. Killing people or this or suicide is not a pro- 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 progressive, uh, caring, supportive way. Now, in other jurisdictions, even if you have chronic uh, clinical depression, you can actually avail of this. Now, again, is this got, what my fear makes you say is this we saw what happened to the amendment. This can be extended out again more. This can be added to bits and pieces, put onto us, chip away at this, and eventually you will have a case where a person is suffering from long-term clinical depression depression, and they will want to deal of this. And when you are clinically depressed, I mean, you're not in any position to make decisions on something as serious as this. This will terrify elderly people out there. I believe that you will have situations where people will have very, very long-term conditions and may be suffering for years, either in nursing homes where families are visiting every day, cared for at home, and eventually, like I mean, that the person could say, look, um, they're causing so much hassle in the family and they're, you know, that they take so much looking after that eventually they will say to their loved ones that, look, um, I want to avail of this. And I would be terrified for people out there. This is not the answer. We have a fantastic facility here on Cork, Marymount. It came up with names discussion during the week, which, by the way, was a brilliant couple of programs that he done on the state of the health in Cork City. But Marymount came up. Marymount is a five-star facility outside there, Mick. Right? They do wonderful work out there. They are absolutely fantastic. right? And they give people, because i have been out there with friends of mine that were doing, and they really give them a beautiful send-off and right around the country we where the hospice is doing the exact same thing. We don't need to introduce a regime where it's legal to kill people.
1: Okay, so let's let's be clear. Euthanasia and assisted suicide are illegal under Irish law, but depending on the circumstances, of course, euthanasia is either going to be regarded as either manslaughter or murder, and yeah. it's punishable by up to life imprisonment. This is what we're trying to change here, or this, yeah. is, this is what would be changed. Assisted suicide is also illegal attempting to commit suicide itself is not a criminal act. Um, but uh, Halligan said in 2015 the bill was inspired by the late Marie Fleming, who, while in the final stages of MS, took a landmark challenge to the Supreme Court on Ireland's legal ban on assisted suicide. She lost that battle. But the Chief Justice said, if I remember correctly, in the case at the time, there was nothing in the judgment to prevent the state from introducing legislative measures with appropriate safeguards to deal with cases such as hers. Would it not be from a position then of mercy, John, uh, that, what, you know, if properly it? controlled, this legislation could be availed of.
10: Like any of us, obviously, like, there was a time you are quite right, where if a person took their own life, it was deemed to be a crime. Now, how do you prosecute a person that's no longer here for something they've done and taken their own life? Uh, that astounded me that I was ever put down as a crime, right? But, I mean, the thing is, look, if, if anybody wants to help a loved one there and on their way, they can do that. But you will then be, when the autopsy was find out maybe that, you know, the person wasn't in a position making me to take the tablets themselves or whatever, and they were assisted. Well, if a person wants to do that, they have the choice to do that. But then they will have to deal with the consequences when they stand in front of a judge. So that's a given, right? But to be introducing it and to make it legal. I think is the wrong way to go because I think we are we have already devalued life enough in this country, and are we going to devalue more? No, because I spoken to elderly people, I've canvassed many, many, many doors, hundreds of doors in this town, and this actually came up, and people are terrified of this. Terrified.
1: Okay, but let me put it to you. And once again, I have to be the devil's advocate when there's only one Definitely. side of the argument being portrayed oh, here. Okay, oh, yes, um, yes. you know, people forget you should be entitled after a long and dignified life to a dignified death. And, you know, how hard is it to think that somebody's going to die and that their suffering is going to be prolonged?
10: Well, well you see, the thing is, this is why the hospices were formed the first day ever, and they do fantastic work, which I previously said, like Maryam until Save Me, Christ. And, I mean, this idea, you like, mean, that they can't control the pain... Well, they can. I mean, you speak to any, any professor involved in, in any of the cancer treatments, and they'll tell you that they always do the best they can for people right up to the end, and they give people a dignified death. But I don't think, uh, as I said in introducing somebody where the state actually makes it legal for to kill people. I, I, I'm just deeply uncomfortable with that, and many, many people I've spoken to are also deeply uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> so you would be fully against, if the, if the bill was legislated for... And passed right. It would, to my knowledge, it would give those with an incurable and progressive illness the choice to end their own life on their own terms. You're against that.
10: Well, well you see, it's the assisted part of it. I mean, you see, like I mean, is that is that going to be included? Like anyone can take an overdose the tablets themselves, as long as you can do it yourself or, you, or whatever way you decide to end your own life. So you're quite entitled to do that. I mean, there's no one can stop you. Right? That's not a crime. But it's where the assisted power comes in, the assisted dying, the assisted suicide. That's what I'm worried about. Because, again, as I said, to me, we should have a referendum, at least on ethnic race, even though I, I won the much face in the electorate, I'll be honest with you, but at least have it anywhere. But I think I won't have a problem even with a file, the major parties entering again. With this, not every one of the TDs will be on board with this.
1: Uh-huh. Okay, Irish woman Vicky Phelan as well, of course, she unearthed the cervical check scandal after being diagnosed with terminal cancer. Uh, she supports the Dying with Dignity Bill, but she doesn't want to see it go to a Citizens' Assembly. Uh, she said, I don't think it's something that should be voted on by a Citizens' Assembly, since the courts have said there's nothing to stop the Oireachtas from legislating. So the way to enact the legislature uh, the legislation is open. Uh, you're against it even being discussed, John.
10: Well, the fact is, to me, at least, I think the people of the world should have a referendum on this. Now, with the greatest respect to Vicky Feeling and what happened to her and the other women out there, was an absolute appalling disgrace, right? And it one of the blackest days in the history of this country. But I don't want to see Vicky Feale being used like as the poster girl for euthanasia. Right? I don't want to. See I don't that.
1: think she's going to allow herself to be either. But let, let me finish with this. The, the, these are the words of uh, Vicky Feeler and I quote her here now. I'd like to see this Doyle having the balls to deal with this bill and to vote it through to give people like me the option of dying with dignity at home here in Ireland. Uh, John, it's it's going to come up for more discussion I'm sure we'll talk to you again about it yes. but thank, thank you for making you your position know. so clear Thank you Thank you. Coming up on 11 minutes to, allow, uh, to 12 now
11: The Neil Prendival Show on Cork's Red FM Our phone lines remain open after midday 1850 104 106
1: And this is Mick Mulcahy in for Neil for uh, two weeks or Miguel Mulcahy as uh, as Brenda calls me Good morning to Eilish Hi Eilish Good
11: morning uh, Mick, hi, how are you?
1: I'm good, what have you got for us? Yeah.
11: Ah, okay, right. I was listening all last week, you know, and I love the show because at the moment now I'm not working full time.
1: Well, that was—I um, tell you—that was uh, a heavy week. No wonder Neil is, needs a it holiday. It was a heavy week. Well, entitled right. to it.
11: It was very poignant, heartbreaking. I listened to so many of those people's stories. It's just, and I have two stories myself, but I haven't time to put them together, you know, and this goes back uh, maybe 32 years, 20 years with my
1: sister and my father. Well, why don't you put them together and get in touch with us? uh, I will
11: indeed, yeah, but I just don't have time. I know I'm I'm, I'm not working, but... I have to, what would I say, I have to... You have to
1: consider your position and get the words right, I guess.
11: And get the words right, yeah. I have, yeah. I have a lot of work done on it. Well, our door's it, always okay? open here
1: whenever you get that completed, okay?
11: I'll tell you that, yeah. Sure, I love Neil and I'm always talking to him. And Brenda, she's brilliant. But anyway, no, uh, the only thing I was saying there was, uh, as I think Brenda, is that, you know, Christ, 30 years ago, I had my daughter and my, my partner was in with me, okay? No problem. What is the you know, what is the big deal? They're living at home together. Neither don't have COVID. He drops her off at the AE or wherever. She's in there on her own. And then the only time he sees her again is when they're collecting the little Baba to bring it home. It's just totally ridiculous when you see the protests in Dublin the conglomerations on all the beaches in Ireland and a dad can't go in and see his baby be born. That's the only point I wanted to make.
1: Mm -hmm. Not to mention golf dinners. Pardon? Not to mention golf dinners.
11: Oh, golf dinners and all the rest of it. Like, I've lost total... total, what would I say, uh, uh, respect for anybody, you know, in government or anything, you know. I'm not sure, Um,
1: isn't the dad allowed in for the actual moment of birth, you know, the 60 seconds? Just about, just about. about,
11: That's not right. That's not right. That's not right. Because mum, you know, being a mum myself, you're anxious. You know, I know it's 30 years ago since I had my girl, but you're anxious. You want somebody there to hold your hand. And it was like, you know, I've listened to me last week and uh, one story about my my birth was uh, which was you know uh, I was so so tempted to ring in. I was in labor in a little cubicle, but twas was in the region now i won 't mention the hospital okay. but i was the nurse was here, you know checking my 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 daughter 's heartbeat, and the woman next door to me was miscarrying, and I saw. The doctors take that little child and wrap it in a little blanket, okay? Mm -hmm. It wasn't the size of a pound of butter. And I thought it was so, so, the father sobbing, the mother sobbing. It was so wrong. Do you know, there's something so wrong about our system here. I'm wondering, uh, Alicia, is is,
1: is there a legitimate medical reason coming from the HSE or from the COMH or whatever uh that this is the practice that's that should be happening, that this is best practice for preventing COVID no, and for the safety so. of everybody. I
11: don't think so. But, but sorry sorry for COVID preventing everyone. Mm. No, I'm I'm going back thirty years with that, right? Oh I,
1: I know that. Okay. Yeah, but but uh, think- going back to what's happening today, is there a legitimate medical reason that the dad isn't allowed in, you know, for, for the majority of the labour as as no, well as just I don't think so. For the birth I
11: don't think so, because they're living at home together. Neither of them have COVID, do you know? And there's no reason why that man can't be in fully gowned. I worked in the region many years ago myself, and I worked in the isolation units and ICU and everything, you know. And, you know, fully gowned, mask, gloves, everything. There is no reason why a dad cannot be at his wife's or partner's side for that magic moment. I think it's ridiculous.
1: Uh-huh. Well, it's where we're at. Let's see, think, let's see what changes tomorrow, Elish.
11: And I also think, um, Mick, sorry, you know, just a final word cause I know it's nearly 12 o'clock. I think that if somebody is in for a miscarriage and somebody is in for, because I was listening to Neil adamantly, all oh, I just love the show. I absolutely love. It's keeping me going during COVID because I'm not really working. But if somebody is, there should be two separate places. If somebody is miscarriaging, and somebody is having a healthy baby, there should be two separate zones in the hospital for that, because I saw it with my own
1: eyes. You mean there isn't? I didn't know there wasn't.
11: Oh, I saw it with my own eyes 30 years ago. Wow. Sure, if you if you heard the ladies last week, they were ha- in having a, a, a miscarriage, and next thing, the ladies beside them were getting flowers and cards and everything, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
11: It's so wrong. So wrong, Like.
1: All right. It's great to talk to you. Thanks a million, Eilish. Um you Lovely
11: say shock to, to you make. I often, you know and I I love the show. I absolutely love it. And I will put my thoughts together because my father was horrendously abused in DOH thirty years ago. He thirty two years ago he died. And I have a sister who is she's fine now, but her story is something I even spoke to me Hall Martin about her story. I met him in Grand Parade one day.
1: Well, it, it sounds as though the two separate stories individually need need, need, stories, need to be yeah. written properly and need to be given, yeah, yeah. need, well, to, need written, to be aired, and, you know, even,
11: written, even, even just to do
1: the right thing for them.
11: Yeah, I All have right. written, yeah.
1: All and right.
11: thank you so much. Thanks, thanks Anish. Thanks, Brenda. Thanks, Brenda.
1: Thanks a million. All the best. And that just about wraps up the Neil Penteville show this morning. But on Friday, uh, we spoke with Heather, who had booked her wedding at Castle Martyr Hotel Resort. uh, And we had stated on the show that the hotel were contacted for comment. And we're happy to confirm now communication was sent to the incorrect email. And that's probably why we didn't get a response. The hotel has since promised to issue a statement in due course. We're happy uh, to issue that clarification uh, and to await the Statement in due course from the Castle Martyr Hotel results. Sorry about that, guys. Okay, coming up on two minutes to 12, our lines remain open thanks to our producers Brenda Donahue and Seamus Wheelahan, uh, ably assisted Brenda Donahue. Oh no, it's Brenda Dennehy. Brenda, Brenda Dennehy was a, oh, an old friend of mine on the Jerry Ride show. Sorry about that. Brenda Cita Denahita and uh, Seamus Wheelahan, Emma and Mark as well. I'm going to be late for news. News at 12 is next.
2: Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.